So there's this amusement park out in Shawnee, and it seems like it's cursed three times over. All seems to go back to when settlers were moving in on the area, and this family, the Clay family, tried to lay claim to the land, but Native Americans in the area, who were there first, said, no way, this is our home, you can't just claim this. Well, uh, while the Clay family was living there, the dad went out hunting, and while he was gone, apparently some Native Americans from the area killed his kids. Like, one of them was stabbed, and one of them was um, scalped, and one of them was burnt alive, which all seemed like great ways to make a ghost. And when the dad came back, he was super upset and apparently killed a bunch of Native Americans uh, that were in the area, which, again, it's like a great way to get the land cursed. And years later, there was an amusement park built on that land, which seems like a super great idea. And while it was an amusement park, at least two people died, but they say there might have been even more. And then, on top of that, it was discovered that this was built on top of a Native American mass grave, where a bunch of people were buried, and they say they discovered 13 bodies, but archaeologists kind of think that could have been, like, thousands of people buried there. So seems super, super cursed, and a bunch of uh, ghost investigator teams have been there, and like psychics, and they frequently say that they're too overwhelmed to really study it very much. Super haunted. I kind of want to go there, actually. It doesn't. Have you heard the story of- and written on the wall? And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother. This happened to my telling you stories of the old. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week, we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again, what our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. We want to welcome all of our fantastic listeners back. So I was thinking about it, you guys, and you are my favorite people in the world. So I'm going to tell you what I was thinking about it. And I've decided that you are each like beautiful little nesting dolls of awesomeness. And, And each one you open between the nesting dolls, there's a little extra space for glitter. And when you get to the tiny little one inside, it's got the biggest heart in the world. And you are all so special. And thank you for all being so wonderful. I would love to put you all on my shelf. Well, that's fantastic. Hey, you know a few wonderful people are? So we had some new ratings and reviews, some very nice words said, um, including by CanCan, Farby, R. Detloff, Failure, Five Wilhelminas, Mini Ninja, and Love Your History. I want to thank all of those people for leaving ratings and reviews on iTunes. I want to encourage you to do that. It helps people learn about the show and encourage them to check it out. And it uh, gives us a little daily affirmation of our own. That's very true. But if you're not in the mood to rate and review for whatever reason, or if you already have and you still have more to say, there are lots and lots and lots of ways you can do that. Sure, you can reach out to us on social media, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Just a Story Pod. Or you can go to our website where you can find information about all of the topics of the episodes, our citations and sources and other fun information, as well as links to the Just a Story merch store. 
and all of the merch there has designs on it that, spoiler alert, I made. I made those for you. It's true. Just for you. And that's a great way to help support the show and get a fun, cool, awesome, fantastical t-shirt. Or mug. Or notebook. Or throw pillow. Or shower curtain. I don't know if I had the shower curtains on. If anybody wants a shower curtain, let me know. (laughs) We will make it happen. Another way to support the show is through Patreon. Now, on our Patreon page, you can become a sustaining member and get access to uh, mini episodes. Or stickers. Everyone loves stickers. Even children love stickers. Right, pediatrician? It's true. Or meetups, the digital kind. And another way you can reach out to us is... The Urban Legend Hotline. You can call us at 512-222-3375. Again, that number is 512-222-3375. And if you call within the next five minutes, you will receive a pony. That's right, a live pony will be airlifted to your apartment which is probably not a good idea. I'm rethinking this now and recanting that offer. But if you do want to call us and tell us all about your personal favorite urban legend, a scary story that you were tortured with as a child, or one that you used to scare the kids at camp, we would love to hear all about that. And if you still have some feelings to work out about your sixth grade crush, we would like to hear about that too. You can leave us a voicemail and we will listen. And depending on whether or not you deem the information classified, we will use it on the show or just know it exists in the world so sam back to the story at hand oh is it time already it is okay we have as one headline puts it the terrifying lake shawnee amusement park that was built on an american indian burial ground and many believe to be horribly cursed american indian i think that's the appropriate term they went middle ground there they did i like it i like the middle ground a lot of gray area it's like we're gonna be kind of politically correct but you can't tell us what to do so this is a very very creepy looking amusement park that's abandoned in west virginia okay this thing looks like someone's senior project in set dressing for a horror movie like it looks like it was just left there never used for anything but it looks like every detail was geared toward creeping the bejesus out of you so this Very Cursed Land was actually an amusement park that was abandoned in 1966. The Year of the Beast. The park is rumored to be inhabited by all of the people who lost their lives on the property. So that includes those buried in a massive Native American grave. Mm -hmm. As well as settlers who died there. Mm -hmm. And children that lost their lives on the amusement park rides. Is that why they shut it down? Not necessarily. Okay. It's cited that they shut it down uh, secondary to like rising insurance costs and just decreased. Attendance. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So money. They shut it down because money, not because dead kids. Of course. But it was bought more recently and they tried to reopen it, opening it for about three years before they had to shut it down again. And why this time? Money. Money. Okay. Money is scary. (laughs) So this has been featured on many paranormal shows, travel channel, etc. And it always says, built on an ancient Indian burial ground. That's kind of what they say about everything that's supposed to be haunted. It is very common. So this thing, with or without Indian burial ground, with or without kids dying, 
even really with or without ghost, looks terrifying. Looks so spooky. It is the spookiest place on earth, as opposed to Disneyland, which I guess is not what you want for an amusement park. But what's true, what's not? What are we working with here? Shockingly, a lot of it's true. Shut shut up. (laughs) So it was known that in this area... In 1783, Shawnee Indians killed and scalped two children from the Clay family, who were the first white settlers in the county. Okay, so not Henry Clay. I'm not sure if they're related. Probably. Actually, you know what? There were like seven Americans at this point who were from Europe. Something like that. Yeah. Shawnees didn't mess around. And now there were also several confirmed deaths that occurred at the park, including a drowning because they had the lake was open for swimming. Okay. And we've all seen Friday the 13th. We know the teenage lifeguards are not paying attention. And now in the 80s, after this new family had taken over and they were doing some dirt work, they uncovered skeletons. Plural? Yes. So they appropriately called the Marshall University. So in 1988, Marshall and Concord College had an archaeological dig at the site where 13 bodies were discovered, the majority of them children. Oh? Along with traces of even earlier settlements, including like pots and pipes and things like that. So unless you mean pot pipes and children, this is not from the 60s. You mean like pottery and pipes. Like, So this is Native American, sounding very Native American. Right, and they did determine that they were Native American burial remains. So they've had... A Native American children's burial ground at this haunted playground or amusement park. Right. And so that's going to make a ghost. Yeah. So the archaeologists believe that there could be upward of 3,000 remains in the area. Mm. And now you can visit the site. No, but don't. Especially on Halloween. But you shouldn't. Where they do host like haunted tours interestingly there is a tombstone placed mm-hmm. for the clay children near the ferris wheel okay so the white kids get a tombstone well of course and the native kids they get no tombstone i'm not sure if there's a marker i don't want to be too biased okay fair and balanced it's all we want to be so don't go on halloween because you shouldn't go play in indian burial grounds on halloween because that's just you shouldn't and things will follow you home. I just know they will. Because you are you like stories and they will want to tell you theirs. So don't do that. Or do. And then call us. Please. Okay, so this is one of those weird instances where we find a story and we're like, oh, that's a fun urban legend. And then we look into it and it's all true up front. So interesting. We kind of put it down, flipped it and reversed it. Like when we do that. But a lot of times it's not true. But everything claims to be part of some kind of Native American ancient Indian burial ground. Right? Right. It's a huge trope in fiction. In horror, especially. Especially. You know, the idea that the disturbed spirits of the ancients of the land that enact their bloody vengeance against those who wake them. It's like the mummy. Yes, there's definitely uh, some components to that because you have the 
you know, kind of new civilization coming in and taking advantage of it. That colonial narrative. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It is part of it. And there's some, you know, this is kind of where that colonial narrative has come in recent times because you have those ideas of like the noble savage, mm-hmm. their connection to the ancient energies and their magical powers that they have and their hidden knowledge. Mm, like Greg. Right. Okay. But like you said, this idea, this fascination and fear of... Ancient Indian burial grounds has been around since the founding of the country. Too true. Too true. So revolutionary poet Philip Freneau wrote The Indian Burial Ground in 1787. Oh, buckle up, people. It's going to be good. I can just tell. He's got a poet's name. Thou stranger that shalt come this way in spite of all the learned have said, I still my old opinion keep. The posture that we give the dead points out the soul's eternal sleep. Not so the ancients of these lands, the Indian, when from life released, again is seated with his friends and shares again the joyous feast. No fraud upon the dead commit. Observe the swelling turf and say they do not lie, but here they sit. By midnight moons over moistened dew, inhabit for the chase arrayed. The hunter still the deer pursues. The hunter and the deer, a shade. And long shall timorous fancy see the painted chief and pointed spear, and reason's self shall bow the knee to shadow and delusion here. Okay, so that's actually a very effective poem. I That the hunter and the deer, a shade line. It gives me chills. It really does. But that just shows you that since there have been white men with pens... In this country. And shovels. And that makes me think of the poem Dig- Digging by Seamus Henry. It's so good. Paul's go read it. But anyway, as long as there have been white men with pens and shovels in this country, they have been coming across ancient Indian burial grounds and fearing the repercussions for disturbing them. This is not something that was invented in you know, the last century. No, it's not. And then one historian, Mary Beth Norton, discusses this idea in Puritan times about the early Puritan witch trials, saying that judges and magistrates with all ex-military or civil leaders who were unable to protect the community from the devils in the woods, the dangers of the wilderness, from the Native Americans, could then take that blame and put it on these witches. Yeah, that's a very strong theme in Puritan society, and you can learn more about that by revisiting our Jersey Devil episode. And There's the, also stuff about pig sex, but, you know. Buggery. Whatever, pig sex. And even Nathaniel Hawthorne points out that the curse goes to the founding of Salem. The pavement of Main Street must be laid over the red man's grave. Well, he was a, a tad bit dark, that romantic. A little bit. So in modern pop culture, the idea of the ancient Indian burial ground has resurfaced over the last few decades. I think it kind of had its its heyday in the 70s, kind of when uh, horror movies were finding their footing. Yes, in a way. But it actually starts more with horror fiction, or you could call it fiction. So really the big push most likely... Is from the Lutzes. Oh, George! It was a way old callback to our Amityville Horror episode. Oh, yes, before we fix the audio. Have fun with that. <laughs> the audio is kind of crap. But anyway, 
summarize, if you will. The Lutz family moved into their home in Amneville and began experiencing all manner of strange phenomena, or did they? But one of the reasons that they believed that they were encountering so much negativity was because they had disturbed an ancient Indian burial ground. And they were being haunted by angry spirits of chiefs. And the chiefs were putting curses on them. Right, and the psychics had told them this. And one of them said that this area was used to house like the insane Native Americans in the tribe. Yes, and those that were dying. Kind of like a... Just it's like a... Island of Misfit Toys, if you will. Of course, all of that is... BS. Yeah. Completely bullshit. But it didn't stop the Lutzes from just, you know, going with it, as you do if you get that kind of story when you're looking for one. (laughs) And then you do keep seeing it pop up in horror fiction and horror movies at this time. Okay, I'm going to just rattle off as many as I can think of. Okay. So, The Shining... Definitely. There's some very interesting kind of hidden themes in The Shining of that Native American... Iconography, I guess? Yeah. I mean, you can see it in the designs in the hotel. There are hidden labels and symbols. There's also a massive statue, uh, I believe after Remington, that's featured. It's on labels in the background. Go watch uh, that documentary, 237. Very, very good. If you're into that kind of thing, and it's like seven hours Which long. Which you probably are, <laughs> if you like the show. Uh, and then you've got that poltergeist, like the skeletons float up at the end. They do, but it's, it's not actually. A lot of people say it is an Indian burial ground. It's not. They oh. actually specifically state it in the movie. For some reason, that's just become part of pop culture that it was. Mm. And then, oh, you have this wonderful moment when Stephen King remembers that whole plot line and he takes monkey's paw and he crosses it with native american burial grounds and you end up with pet cemetery yes pet cemetery so in pet cemetery you have the new people that have moved to the small town in maine and in one scene the main character hits his child's cat with a car on accident oopsie doopsie his neighbor tells him they should go bury this cat in an ancient Indian burial ground because it can bring things back to life. Okay, and another word of advice. If you have a neighbor that tells you to go bury your dead cat in an ancient Indian burial ground so it can be brought back to life, call the police and move. How does he know this? But And then, you know, I'm sure you can assume things get worse from there. (laughs) Go watch the movie slash read the book. But interestingly... In the book, they mention that there's a lawsuit going on that Native American tribes are suing the state of Maine for land. And the thing is, that was happening in real life. Right. This is the late 60s, early 70s when this is written? All right. So it was in 1972. So the Wabanaki tribe sued Maine for lands they were entitled to by federal law and treaty. This land made up 60% of Maine. Wait, so is this in the book or in real life? Real life. And the book? Yes. Interesting. It's a little different in the book, of course. Well, yeah. But it was, it was very ripped from the headlines. And now they eventually settled for $81 million and other federal guarantees. Interesting point. But in the book, when they're referencing this, you know, they have characters asking things like, 
Who does own this land anyway? Well, I happen to know that white men think they own whatever land they land on. And that the earth is just a dead thing that they can claim. Some Puritans would believe you. (laughs) So would Disney. But anyway. (laughs) So one legend I thought we could really dig into is one that you and I grew up with and is very famous around the globe now due to all of the History Channel and ghost shows and things like that is the Myrtle's Plantation. Okay, so this is a plantation in South Louisiana. It is not in New Orleans. You will often hear that it is, but people are lying to you. It's like an hour and a half away. It's in St. Francisville. And so it's supposedly built on Tunica Burial Ground. And those of you from Louisiana might know the Tunica Biloxi Casino. And yes, that Tunica. But it's often cited as one of America's most haunted homes. There are 28 rooms. It has a 125-foot ironwork-clad veranda, which has beautiful grapes in the ironwork. So, apparently, there is an upside-down keyhole because the ghosts who lived in the trees would try to enter the house at night via the keyhole. And doing this, putting the keyhole in upside-down, could keep the ghosts from coming in. It has been featured on every... Like a hotel room show, like the show that you watch when you see it on when you're stuck in your hotel room, you know, or the ones you DVR and drink and make fun of. Yeah, that's what we do. But I'm thinking about normal people. Oh, Normal people. So Unsolved Mysteries filmed a segment about the alleged hauntings of the plantation. And according to the illustrious man in a trench coat himself, Robert Stack, the production crew experienced technical difficulties during the production of the segment. Myrtles was also featured in Ghost Hunters and Ghost Adventures. And to quote Zach Baggins, dude, bro. Dude, bro. Ghost, bro. 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 Ghost. Bro, it hit me. I'm going to hit it back. Whoa, Zach. Take it down a notch. So there are several different apparitions and phenomena that are reported by people who visit the Myrtles. Among the tenants... At the Myrtles Plantation, there's a young Native American woman who appears naked in the courtyard beneath a weeping willow. If spotted, she looks at you and catches your eye and then disappears. There's also a bloody spot that won't come out of the floor. There are reports of children pulling on visitors' clothing. And people also report hearing the cries of children. And then there's the mirror. The famous Mm. mirror where you can see the trapped spirits. Lots and lots of ghosts, stories of 10 murders occurring on the property, very, very ill-fated home. Now, the haunting trouble really took off, really began in 1817, when the plantation was owned by Sarah and Clark Woodruff. He had two daughters, and Sarah was pregnant with a third child. Woodruff had a little problem with that whole fidelity thing. Wasn't so much on it, little promiscuous. And around this time, he started having an affair with a woman named Chloe, who was a slave on the plantation. But she was a domestic, so she was in the house. One day, his eye wandered a little bit further than Chloe, and he took up with another woman. And Chloe was very, very worried that she was going to be cast out of the house and sent to work in the fields. So she began to eavesdrop and listen in on the two of them. But one day, old man Woodruff caught her. And his punishment, he cut off one of her ears. 
So she began to wear a green turban to hide that hideous scar. One day, Chloe decided she was done putting up with it, and she decided that she would have her revenge. She was baking a birthday cake for the oldest daughter, and she mixed into the batter poisonous oleander. Now, some people believe that she was trying to get the children sick so that she could nurse them back to health and earn a place in the good graces of old man Woodruff. Now, other people say this was purely revenge. But Sarah and the two children each had one piece of cake and became violently ill and died. At this point, the other enslaved people on the plantation became irate and very concerned about how the master was going to react to the news that Chloe had murdered his entire family. And so as retribution for this act, they lynched Chloe. And then they weighed down her body and tossed it in the river. And that is like the most famous ghost of the plantations, the one everyone talks about. And there's even a famous like National Geographic photo of Chloe. It's pretty convincing. It is. It's pretty convincing. Like it's, it's interesting. A, it's an interesting anomaly, if nothing else. You can buy a postcard of it. Honey, they'll sell you anything. <laughs> And eventually, Woodruff's own life was ended by murder, but that story is a little fuzzier. Now, there's another legend about Mr. Winter. And according to this legend, he was standing guard at his door when the marauding Yankees came, trying to protect the plantation from the aggressions of the North. And he was mortally wounded when they came up on his porch and shot him. Damn Yankees. And their horns. And their baby-eating ways. But our hero, Mr. Winter, staggers back into the house, passed through the gentleman's parlor, because of course he did, and into the ladies' parlor, because you have to have both. And then he staggered onto the staircase that rises in the central hallway, and he managed to climb just high enough to die in the arms of his beloved wife on the 17th step. It's since been claimed that ghostly footsteps can be heard coming into the house and walking the stairs and then climbing to the 17th step where they, of course, stop dead in their tracks. Spooky Myrtles! So, these are the stories of the Myrtles Plantation. This is what you'll hear whenever you go for a tour, or you can even go and spend the night there. Which you should do, and then tell us about it. But, actually, the only thing that has any historical record behind it is the winter murder. Well... Let's go into it. Okay, let's go into it. So the real story. So the house now known as the Myrtles was built in 1794 by David Bradford. Now he was from Pennsylvania. He'd become a successful attorney and businessman and deputy attorney general for Washington County in Pennsylvania. He later met and married Elizabeth Porter in 1785. So in October of 1794... He was forced to flee Pennsylvania, leaving his family behind because he had become involved in the Whiskey Rebellion. The Whiskey Rebellion, you say? I've had a few of those. It was one of the early upheavals against taxes and the new federal government with the founding of America. But legend has it that George Washington himself put a price on his head. You don't mess around with George. You don't spit into the wind and you don't mess around with George. So he left his family in safety and traveled down the Ohio River to the Mississippi River and down that to Bayou Sarah. Near he what is ran all the yes. way away. 
where is now St. Francisville, Louisiana. He had originally traveled there in 1792 to try to obtain a land grant from Spain, so he kind of knew the area. He built the home and named it Laurel Grove. Now, in 1799, he received a pardon from John Adams. Nice of you. Because he helped establish Ellicott's Line, the boundary between Spain and the United States. So he flew back up to Pennsylvania. No, he didn't. Not like flying, like they used to use the term. Oh, he went fast. He quickly. He made haste. Yes. And collected his family and took them back down to Louisiana. Where they went. Oh, really, honey? Are you sure about this? It's really hot. And there are a lot of mosquitoes. mosquitoes. And there, other than running his plantation, he started to take in law students, including one Clark Woodruff. Okay, well, that's the name. Right. And Clark Woodruff had traveled down the Mississippi at 19 to seek his fortune. Is that that was the thing? I guess it was like going to the West. Yeah. Okay. At the time. the frontier. I forget. And he arrived at Bayou Sarah in 1810. Okay, so Sarah is the wife's name in the story, too, in the Chloe legend. It is. So I wonder if that's where that comes from. It's not, because he did end up marrying Sarah Matilda, Bradford's daughter. Handy as a pocket on his shirt. Sarah Matilda's a really cute name. So now when he arrived in that area, it was kind of an upheaval, because that year the citizens of Feliciana Parish rose up in revolt against the Spanish in Baton Rouge and established their own territory in the area. In 1814, he joined Colonel Hyde's cavalry regiment and fought with Andrew Jackson at the Battle of New Orleans. Wow! With Jean Lafitte. The pirate. Of course. You can't leave him out if we're talking about Louisiana legends. No, Jean Lafitte goes right in there. Right there with old Hickory at the Battle of New Orleans, getting those dastardly British out of our American soil. Because, you know, we signed a treaty a few days before. <laughs> you know, there's a song. They powdered an alligator's behind, put a cannonball in his mouth. It's a thing. Leave it alone. Have you seen the movie? No. Yeah, with, with Charlton Heston? No. <gasps> Sam. Why would I have seen the movie? Because I took because seventh grade Louisiana, Louisiana history. history. We watched it. No, Miss Smith did not let us watch movies. We watched a few. We had a great teacher. I really did have a great teacher. In 1814, he took a little trip down to Louisiana on the mighty Mississippi. So when he got back from the great victory with Old Hickory and Old Pirate Lafitte, he married Sarah, and they actually honeymooned at the Hermitage. Holy cow! Yeah, they were. He was really buddies with Andrew Jackson. Old Hickory, old dog. Who knew you had a honeymoon vista? So after that, he began to manage Laurel Grove, especially after Judge Bradford died. Oh, he judged? He became the judge of the area. Oh, okay. Where they planted cotton and indigo and, of course, had many, many slaves. Yeah, well, of course they did. And they also had three children. Well, the story says two and a half. She had three. Uh, Cornelia Gale, James, and Mary Octavia. Those are all great names. They are good. So on July 21st of 1823, Sarah Matilda dies. Because she's poisoned. Of yellow fever. That's not poison. But that is sad. I'm sorry. It is sad. Because on July 15th of 1824, his only son, James, dies. Of poison cake. Of yellow fever. Yellow fever again. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing a pattern. Now, two months later, in September... Someone else dies. Cornelia Gell dies. 
poison gay. Yellow fever. Hey, they're not they're not doing a very jo- good job getting rid of the yellow fever. Okay. So there was a lot of yellow fever in South Louisiana at this time. Shocking. Huge outbreaks in New Orleans. Some of the major health crises in the United States before the great flu, Spanish flu epidemic in 1918. But it was one of the many causes for sanitation for the draining of the swamps because mosquitoes carry it and it's a nasty nasty virus it's a hemorrhagic fever reference point ebola is a hemorrhagic fever oh that's worse than poison cake you don't even get cake yeah you don't get cake out of it and i think it takes a little longer it's really sad i'm sorry i'm sorry that happened so definitely deaths of the wife and children but not in the same way and not all in one day and not no chloe and no cake and no cake. And there's no historical record of any slave named Chloe or any similar name to that. He continued to manage the plantation until his mother-in-law died. And then he left it with a caretaker and then sold it to Ruffin Gray Sterling in 1834. Again, great name. So he took over the land, crops, buildings, and of course, the slaves. Now I feel bad for feeling bad that those people died because they owned slaves. Now, Ruffin Gray Sterling was a very well-to-do man. Their family owned many, many plantations around Louisiana and Mississippi area. So he completely remodeled the home, imported furnishings, imported craftsmen to work on the home, doubled the size of the house, and changed the name to the Myrtles, after all of the crepe Myrtles Mm. that were around the area. Now, four years after its completion, he... Died. Yes. Yellow fever. (laughs) Consumption. Oh, well, that's the other one, isn't it? Now, he left everything to his wife. Uh Uh-huh. And so she was going to run the plantation. A wife running a plantation? You're hilarious. Right. But you know what? People respected her. At the time, men even stated, quote, that she had the business acumen of a man. It's high praise. That is at the (laughs) time. Yeah. Now, of their nine children, only four of them lived to be old enough to marry. And then, of course, you know, the Civil War breaks out. So they all die. Many. (laughs) But they also lose, like, all of their personal belongings. They're looted, destroyed by Union soldiers. And a lot of their wealth was in Confederate currency. Yeah, that did not work out well for a lot of people. Also, a lot of their wealth invested in humans. That, too. And crops that were burned. So, ruined. Poor decisions. Yes. Series of poor decisions. Now, they gave the Myrtles, what was left of it, to their daughter, Sarah, and her husband, William Drew Winter. Okay. In 1865. William Winter. Got our Mr. Winter. Now, Mr. Winter was murdered on the front porch of the house after the Civil War. No one knows exactly why. They were inside. A man rode up on horse, called out to him, Winter, get out here. He comes out and they just shoot him and ride off. If it had happened in Reno, I'd say it was Johnny Cash. Might have been. Now, according to the Point Coupee, Democrat newspaper from 1871. Point Coupee is a lovely little town. They have the best cracklins. It's good. Winter was teaching a Sunday school lesson in the gentleman's parlor, which... Yeah. Of course he was. When he heard someone approaching the house on horseback, after the stranger called out to him, saying that he had some business with him, 
Winter went out onto the side ga- gallery of the house and was shot. He collapsed onto the porch and died there. So he didn't make his way up the steps? No. Sorry. But that's such a good story. It's a good story. Maybe he did and no one remembers. I don't think so. <laughs> Maybe all of those men who were in the house just missed him somehow. It's possible. Now, eventually it passed through many, 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 many hands. Now, by January 1889, after all these transfers, it was purchased by Harrison Milton Williams, a Mississippi widower who brought his young son and second wife, Fanny. No, you have to read that whole name. Fanny Lintot Harrelson. It's fantastic. Fanny Lintot. Now, during a storm, the Williams' oldest son, Harry, was trying to gather up some stray cattle and fell into the Mississippi River and drowned. I would have let those cows go. How do you fall into it? (laughs) Now, by the 1950s, the property surrounding the house had been divided among the Williams' heirs, and the house itself was sold to Marjorie Munson, an Oklahoma widow who had been made wealthy by chicken farms. Good for you, Marjorie. You have the business acumen of a man. And so, interestingly, I pulled out some of my old Louisiana folklore text, and that's where I was like, I'm going to start the old stuff because i love reading these old books and there was nothing about the myrtles in any of them huh marjorie the chicken farmer made it haunted marjorie she has the business acumen of a genius this is when the ghost stories started to come about and miss when chicken queen marjorie came about and came down louisiana okay but i am gonna put out there that if it had kind of been kept in the family and then they left maybe all the ghosts got mad and they really did start to poker. So maybe there's a reason for it. Sure. I'll just be over here where it's fun to have an imagination. Yeah, just listen to like a ton of people that died. It's just that the deaths are not the same. The stories are just twisted a little to make them a little more fanciful. So maybe she doesn't know the whole story, but maybe there really are ghosts. That's all I'm saying is maybe they're a ghost. Well, she's the one that started spreading the rumors, but the owners right before her who started the refurbishment, the wards, began to embellish the children's death story and include the poison murder and the severed ear. And they make a series of black people into villains as they do this because you have not only Chloe killing off the beautiful, pristine white children, but you have the slaves who take out her, who sentence her to death and kill her. So she sound they sound lovely. They sound like they really had good intentions with the story. <laughs> right. Well, so according to the granddaughter of Harrison and Fanny Williams, hmm. who the owners went and talked to, her aunts used to talk about the ghost of an old woman who haunted the Myrtles and who wore a green bonnet. And they often laughed about it. And it was a family story. And she was never given a name. And... The ghost of the green bonnet was described as an older woman, Mm -hmm. never as a young slave who might have been involved in an affair with the master. And so you do get the idea that there is that kind of twisting of the roles, but you also see other really strong folklore motifs that are all mixed up in that. There's that, and then you get the, the Jezebel. Oh, yes, you do, because she's cavorting. Up to no good. And then, of course, the lovely Mammy story motif. 
Oh, God, you're right. I was not raised rich enough in the South to be familiar with that motif. But it's like you get all your all the best uh-huh. <laughs> or worst. It's like, what are women good at besides raising chickens? And then so they start to add details to the story. Um, and then James and Francis Kierman Myers passed through on a riverboat and decided to purchase the Myrtles. And that's when this began to go nationwide. It was in magazines and books, and they added even more murders. Louis Sterling, the oldest son, was alleged to have been stabbed to death in the house over a gambling debt. You can't just kill real people, like, from history. You can't just do that. They did. Stop it! (laughs) Said three Union soldiers were killed in the house after they broke in and attempted to loot the place. And they were the ones that allegedly were shot to death in the gentleman's parlor, leaving the blood stains on the floor. The blood of a Yankee won't come out of the southern floor. Their ill intent still stains the foundations of our humble home. Bless their hearts. That probably happened somewhere. Some Yankees were probably shot trying to steal from the house. That's definitely happened, but... That's the thing, is that these stories are believable. Believable, yeah. They're believable, and that's why you can believe it. And then also, they go to support the things we want to believe, or the people hearing the stories want to believe that's why the ideas of jezebels are around and so we always talk about these legends stay around because they say something to us exactly it's like we should do a show about that or something now francis kierman who owned the house in the 80s wrote a pamphlet which you can get on google books on her experiences and the real story of the myrtles which i'm sure was sold in the gift shop and that's where she puts forward the theory that this was originally tunica land and bradford wanted to place his house upon a hill and inadvertently chose a burial mound it's not how burial mounds work i knew that (laughs) (laughs) they're not big enough to put a house on not really not really not one like that so i know the tunica were in the area but you can't just like why why i mean i guess we've killed real historical people why not just bury some under your house for good measure it's good for business okay it is good for business why the indian burial ground where did that feature come in well so in 1968 leonard chaye was a guard at angola prison and an amateur archaeologist slash treasure hunter i want to be his friend so he was looking at historical documents And looking at the changes, how the river flows Uh over time through Louisiana before it was levied up and, you know, caused Katrina and all that. That's a different episode. (laughs) Don't start that. So he was exploring land in this area and he used a metal detector and found the grave of a Tunica chief along with a hundred other graves. So remember, amateur, he began excavating oh aka digging it up and stockpiled all of his findings in his house no he didn't he just he just like the bones and all of it all of it oh no no leonard leonard you bastard you coon ass <laughs> he is, he's a couillon <laughs> exactly he's some big couillon so the peabody museum of harvard had been carrying on an archaeological survey of the Lower Mississippi since 1940. And Jeffrey Brain, the field director of the project... I bet he's smart. Brainy, at least. Meh. 
was contacted by Charrier because he wanted to sell his findings to Harvard. Mm-hmm. Of course he did. Now, the Tunica find is the largest collection of 18th century Indian relics ever discovered. It includes musket parts, iron tools, jewelry, French and tribal pottery, over 200,000 European trade beads, more than all the beads ever found in the southeastern United States put together. And all of it was kept in this Kunas's house. You know, there's probably like a thick layer of palm moss smoke on it. And oh, like, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> it smells like rue. His bones smell like gumbo and cigarettes and a little old charter. <laughs> Just wipe it off. So he, ama- he amassed this treasure completely in secret and did it in the most unethical and unscientific way possible. Made no photographs, no scale drawings, no field notes, no markings of where he picked any of it up. Archaeologists say he destroyed as much archaeology as he discovered. Oh, Leonard, you nincompoop. You know it was like in a bunch of like old Roper and Justin boot boxes, like (laughs) stacked. I just have such a mental image of this. The first, he refused to disclose the excavation site, claiming the landowner did not want it known. Oh, and that he had allowed Charia to open the Indian graves. No, I bet he didn't. I bet he's lying. Later, he admitted he had no such documentation. Uh, Leonard. So he was asking for a shit ton of money, and Peabody Museum was like, um, someone's going to need to die before we have that much money. Yeah. And they agreed that the Peabody Museum would take it on loan uh-huh. while they came up with the cash. Uh-huh. But the thing is... It wasn't his to give them. Right. Many lawsuits followed between the state of Louisiana, mm-hmm. Charrier, mm-hmm. and the heirs of the plantation where he found it. Wait, wait, wait. I see someone conspicuously missing. You're right. We'll get there. Okay, I'm holding my thought. So in 1978, Louisiana had bought the plantation, and because of the historical significance of the graves, they tried to intervene in the settlement that had been reached by Mr. Charrier and the landowners. And Jeffrey Brain... From Harvard. uh, Yes, says, Sometimes you just wanted to shake your head or cover your face and pretend it would go away. Okay, so again... I see I see the state of Louisiana, I see the landowners, I see Leonard, and I see Brain. I do not see any mention of, you know, the Tunica tribe. Good point. The Tunica Biloxi tribe at this time was not recognized by the United States. What? Well, see, at the time, and we'll go into this a little more later, they had to prove their historical existence. Well, those bones would help. You're right. It's a paradox. This find allowed them to gain recognition as a tribe by the United States, and then they were able to sue (laughs) for the rights to the find, also known as their ancestors. Oh my gosh, that's a good story. So they technically didn't exist until they found this massive gravesite that proved that they existed then they proved they existed and then they sued to get it back so it actually fixed yes. everything kind of for them like it got them way. federally recognized and they got it back yeah and now it's in a museum in marksville which we're going to go to very soon next time we're in town so one article said after a 12-year court battle a man has lost his claim to two tons of indian artifacts he secretly unearthed 
from Indian burial grounds. Oh, uh, Shari Hay said. Just give you a few few fun quotes. Man, I think it's gonna cost Louisiana dearly. I plan to sit back and watch what these Indians do with it. He said to the New York Times. No, stop it. Leonard Leonard, you're not allowed to speak anymore. Now I found the thing. I spent many an hour digging it up. Yeah, we know Leonard. If I hadn't, the Mississippi River would have taken it from us all. I don't feel like the Louisiana judiciary did me justice. I'm glad he knows what a judiciary oh well, he works at the prison, never mind. Okay, so you mentioned the plantation, so I'm guessing that's the Myrtles. Nope. Oh. Sorry. (laughs) So it was actually the Trudeau Plantation, which is not actually in existence. It's like where it was. It's on the the lands. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like a functioning home like like the Myrtles is. But it is where Justin Trudeau is from. No. Yes. Okay. Yes. But it's actually 20 miles from the Myrtles. But it's kind of obvious that this is in the papers the exact same time this story comes out uh-huh. about the land a few miles away. Uh-huh. And this is where she got the idea. Definitely. So this is basically a big conspiracy between Leonard and the chicken lady? Yes. Okay. So I want to mention two things. First of all, the story of our amateur archaeologist is brought to you by Ghostland. I read about that in Ghostland, which is a fantastic book that is ex- that is creepily like our show. Like, it was written a while back. I don't think he's ripping it off. We are just kindred spirits. <laughs> yes, we're simpatico. It's fantastic. Go read it. Although half of it, oddly, we've done. <laughs> <laughs> and also, if you want to hear a more dramatic tailing of the Myrtle story, in our first season of Audio Dime Museum, we did one about Chloe. And I recommend you go listen to it. It is our scariest episode. Oh, really? You think that one's the scariest? It's a good one. So, the interesting thing of the story of Native American or ancient Indian burial grounds is literally like one of the founding myths of this country. We have literally built our nation around this idea. And to get there, to get to that first contact, get back to the beginning, the start of it all, we need to take a trip. Down the mighty Mississippi. Not that one. No. Yeah, we did that already. We haven't done it yet. Well, we did it already. Well, we're you and like, I, we we've, all did We've done it. Yeah. Okay. But not in time. Not in time. We so not, We do not know where the Mississippi is. Right. So I have a question for you. Yes. If April showers bring Mayflowers, what do Mayflowers bring? Smallpox. Partial credit. The correct answer is pilgrims. Smallpox. That's a kid joke, Doc. Don't ruin it. That's correct. But actually, the first contact between Europeans and Native Americans was not between the benevolent savages who would attend the first Thanksgiving and the pilgrims. It was between others. Wait, I thought the pilgrims discovered America right after Columbus. Okay, look, I know that we love Adam's family values in this house. Agreed. And they get it a little more right than most people. But it didn't go down quite that way either. One of these early European explorers who came to the New World was Captain Thomas Hunt of England, who arrived in 1614. This did not go well. He took 20 potoxets and 7 nagasets prisoner and sold them into slavery to Spain. They also brought smallpox, typhus, (laughs) measles. That wasn't the Mayflower. He had his own boat. Measles, typhus, 
etc. And Native Americans had no immunity to these foreign diseases. And it's estimated, according to various sources, and it varies very much depending on sources, that between 72,000 and 90,000 people lived in southern New England before contact with Europeans. 100 years later, their numbers were reduced by 80%. And there's a great book called 1491. It is good. Looking at modern anthropology and archaeology about this and kind of estimating what America was like. And the settlers did not have to personally kill them all. The diseases knocked out 80% of them. Wasn't that handy? So when the pilgrims did come later, that's an interesting story in and of itself. I read a book by Nick Bunker on it. He is a bunker of the Bunker Hill Bunkers. Really? Really. And it's very thorough history. If you're interested in the Pilgrim's Progress, read that. Good one. But according to Mann, who wrote 1491, the Pilgrims arrived in Cape Cod incredibly unprepared. They landed in the winter. They didn't mean to land where they landed. They were supposed to go to New York. It was a whole thing. And they ended up in Cape Cod, not Plymouth. And they get off. And they were under this mistaken belief that, according to him, because New England is south of the Netherlands and southern England, it would be warmer. Then they showed up six weeks before winter with practically no food. Great planning. Mm -hmm. So in this desperate state, the pilgrims robbed corn from Native American graves and storehouses soon after they arrived. Did they know they were graves? Eh. But because of their overall lack of preparation, half of them still died within the first year. To learn how to farm sustainably, they eventually required help from Tisquantum, an English-speaking Native American, who had been staying with Wampanoag. Now, Bradford wrote, And sure it was God's providence that we found this corn, for else we would know not how we should have done. So a few years before they had arrived, the Native American population had been hit by the plagues, not the plague, the plagues uh, of the white man by the brought by Hunt and others. There were others. They would all come and go. The beaver trade was being discovered at this time, and that was drawing a lot of people to the new world. Not as many as, you know, the colonizing powers would like, but there was still an interest. So this comes from a diary written by a companion of Bradford as they explored the Cape Cod area. It says, After this, some thought it best for the nearness of the river to go down and travel on the sea sands, by which means some of our men were tired and lagged behind. So we stayed and gathered them up and struck into the land again. And we found the little path to certain heaps of sand, and whereof was covered with old mats, and had a wooding thing like a mortar whelmed up on top of it, and an earthen pot laid in a little hole at the end thereof. We, musing what it might be, digged and found a bow, and as we thought, arrows, but they were rotten. We supposed there were many other things, but because we deemed them graves, we put the bow again and made it up as it was, and left the rest untouched, because we thought it would be odious unto them, the native population, to ransack their sepulchres. Wow, that's some good thinking. <laughs> they might not like that. I just <laughs> We went on further and found new stubble, of which they had gotten corn this year, and many walnut trees full of nuts, and a great store of strawberries, and some vines. Passing thus a field or two, which were not great, we came to another, 
which had also been new-gotten. And there was, we found, where a house had been, and four or five old planks laid together. Also we found a great kettle, which had been of some ship's kettle, and brought out of Europe. There was a heap of sand made like the former, but it was newly done. We might see how they had paddled it with their hands, which we digged up. And in all we found a little basket full of their fair Indian corn, and digged further, and found a fine, great new basket full of very fair corn of this year, with some thirty-six goodly ears of corn, some yellow, some red, and otherwise mixed with blue, which is very goodly sight. We were in suspense what to do with it, and when our shallop come, if we could find any people, and come parley with them, we would give them the kettle again, and satisfy them for their corn. So he took all the ears and put a good deal of loose corn in the kettle and two men to bring it away staff besides, that they may put any into their pockets and fill the same. The rest we buried again, for we were so laden with armor that we could not carry more. When we had marched five or six miles into the woods and, and could find no signs of any people, we returned again another way. And as we came into the plain ground, we found a place like a grave, but it was much bigger and longer than any we had yet seen. It was also covered with boards. So as we mused what it should be, we resolved to dig it up. Great idea. Where we found first a mat, and under that a fair bow, and there another mat, and under that a board about three quarters long, finely carved and painted, with three tines and brooches on top of it, like a crown. Also, between the mats we found bowls, trays, dishes, and such like trinkets. At length we came to a fair new mat, and under that two bundles, one bigger, the other less. We opened the grater and found in it a great quantity of fine and perfect red powder, and in it the bones and skull of a man. The skull had fine yellow hair still on it, and some of the flesh unconsumed. There was bound up with it a knife, a pack needle, and two or three old iron things. It was bound up in a sailor's canvas cassock, and a pair of cloth breeches, and the red powder was a kind of embalmment, and yielded strong but not offensive smell. It was as fine as any flower. We opened the less bundle, and likewise found the same powder, and the bones and head of a little child. About the legs and other parts was bound strings and bracelets of fine white beads. There was also by it a little bow, about three quarters long, and some other odd knacks. We brought sundry of the prettiest things away with us, and covered up the corpse again. After this we digged sundry-like places, but found no more corn, nor anything else but graves. They must have been shocked to find blonde hair on the corpse. Yeah, they actually kind of argued about what it was. Yeah, like, is it like a sailor? Is it a blonde Native American? Well, how would they know that there weren't? There's no way to know. And my question is, is, is it white hair? That's kind of tinted from that red powder. It's a good question. So they found a bunch of graves and stolen all the prettiest parts and the things they Mm -hmm, could eat from mm -hmm, it. mm -hmm. Fantastic. So what did the pilgrims, our forefathers, I mean, not my forefather, but America's forefathers, do thusly? Well, after they were done stealing corn from Native American graves and digging things up and taking away the prettiest trinket, digging up children's graves and taking their pretty bracelets away... And saying like, that'll make a ghost. That'll make a ghost mad. (laughs) After they were done with this, and the whole time they're going, we didn't know what to do with it, so we just took it with us. Like, I mean, they're being so coy about all of this. Like, I just feel it's so disingenuous. But anyway, 
And there's all this writing like, oh, they were so uneasy about taking the corn. Bullshit. I call big fucking pilgrim corny bullshit. But so they eventually moved up to Plymouth, Plymouth Rock, and they came upon a a village. So they found the Native Americans. No, they found a village. An abandoned village. Yes. So I assume the people were struck by all the diseases. Yes. So this is Mann, writer of 1491 again. A couple of years before, there'd been an epidemic that wiped out most of the coastal population of New England, and Plymouth was on top of a village that had been deserted by disease. He goes on to say, The pilgrims didn't know, but they were moving into a cemetery. Bradford mused, The good hand of God favored our beginnings by sweeping away great multitudes of the natives that he might make room for us. Ah, divine providence. Yes. And Thomas Morton, who is an English trader traveling with Bradford, said that the Indians had, quote, died on heaps as they lay in their houses, and the bones and skulls upon the several places of their habitations made such a spectacle that to Morton the Massachusetts would seem to be a newfound Golgotha. Where the Romans like to kill people in Jerusalem. Yes. So upon finding the empty village, they were able to, you know, move into the existing structures and sort of, you know, make it through the winter, you know, because they looted the winter provisions, those handy dandy strawberries they'd mentioned earlier, the corn they dug up from graves, the village so handy dandily, you know, moved away by God's merciful hand just so the pilgrims would have a good spot. So that's the beginning of appropriation? Right at the beginning. <laughs> Besides the whole enslaving them part. Yeah. Yeah. So as you know, scholars debate. Do they? It's a thing. And one of the hottest topics of debate is the population before European arrival on the North and South American continent. Yeah, oddly enough, I read this book after my biochemistry professor talked about it. So... There were scholars that claim that the number is very, very large, and there are scholars who say that is all tosh. So Dobbins is one of the ones who claims that there were lots and lots of people here. And he estimates that in the first 130 years of contact, 95% of the people in the Americas died. He says it's the worst demographic calamity in recorded history. And of course, people say it's politically motivated and as white man's guilt. It's leading this calculation of numbers by the liberal white tower anthropologist. Yes, Shepard Kretsch III, which is, come on, dude. You have no no chance of being nice. He's brain's arch enemy. (laughs) No question about it. Some people want those higher numbers. He's a Brown University anthropologist. And a lot of people qualify these arguments about a large native population as being kind of propaganda for the, quote, hate America crowd who want to inflate the toll of imperialism like we need to. That is not necessary. It's already big enough. But Lenore Stiffarm, a Native American education specialist at the University of Saskatchewan, says non-Indian experts always want to minimize the size of Aboriginal populations. The smaller the number, she believes, the easier it is to regard a continent as having been up for grabs. She says, it's perfectly acceptable to move into unoccupied land, and land with only a few savages is the next best thing. I just thought this was very interesting. This is a piece that Mann wrote for The New Yorker. He's discussing how 
the land was not as uncivilized as one might think. This is back home in the Americans, Indian agriculture long sustained some of the world's largest cities. The Aztec capital of Tenochtitlan dazzled Hernan Cortes in 1519. It was bigger than Paris, Europe's greatest metropolis. The Spaniards gawped like hayseeds at the wide streets and ornately carved buildings and markets bright with goods from hundreds of miles away. They had never before seen a city with botanical gardens for the excellent reason that none existed in Europe. The same novelty attended the force of a thousand men that kept the crowded streets immaculate. Streets weren't ankle-deep in sewage. The conquistadors had never seen such a thing. Central America was not the only locus of prosperity. Thousands of miles of north, John Smith, of Pocahontas fame, visited Massachusetts in 1614, before it was emptied by disease, and declared the land was so planted with gardens and cornfields, and so well inhabited, with a goodly, strong, and well-proportioned people, that I would rather live here than anywhere. And one other site that supports these claims is Poverty Point, which is in northeast Louisiana. It's kind of my neck of the woods-ish. It's thousands of years old, and most anthropologists believe it was a meeting site for people from all along the Mississippi River in that area to meet and trade and do religious and ceremonial uh, functions. And it's so important that it is a national monument and it's also even a unesco world heritage site which means you cannot land a helicopter there good to know i was going to do that next week never mind so there was a lot happening here before you know us white guys with pins and shovels showed up and as long as there have been civilizations there have been burial practices one of my favorite onion headlines <laughs> it will go something like Country founded on Indian burial ground. <laughs> because the idea that there is one little spot where all the haunted houses are built that is a Native American burial ground is kind of ridiculous. And as we've discussed, the country was full of Native people that just happened to die before most of the settlers came here from disease brought by the early explorers. So... I thought it'd be interesting to go and look at some of the varied practices of some of the Native American tribes. So the Mimbre people, who were a village-inhabiting tribe in southwest New Mexico, would entomb their deceased under the floors of the house. They were laid to rest with knees and elbows bent and a ceramic pot on their head. The pot was killed by making a small hole in the bottom so that the human spirit and the spirit of the pot would be joined in the next world. It's very interesting. So the Yangtonai people of the Dakotas would build scaffolds to put their deceased on. And so this is from an 1871 publication about the life of Belden, the white chief. These scaffolds are seven to eight feet high, ten feet long, and four or five feet wide. Four stout posts with forked ends are first set firmly in the ground, and then in the forks are laid cross inside poles, on which is made flooring. The body is then carefully wrapped so as to make it watertight and laid to rest on the poles. The reason why Indians bury in the open air instead of under the ground is for the purpose of protecting their dead from wild animals. In new countries where wolves and bears are numerous, a dead body will be dug up and devoured, though it be put many feet under the ground. I noticed many little buckets and baskets hanging on the scaffolds. 
These had contained food and drink for the dead. I asked Wastella if she was sure the soul ate and drank on its journey, and if the food did not remain untouched in its basket. She replied, oh no, the food and water is always gone. So the Inuit people have very interesting practices as well. When a person is dying or very ill, they would build a snow house and place the person in it. The people who placed the dying person would exit the snow house through an opening in the back, and only then they would make a small door in the front. Now, interestingly, they would be expected to share their grief with others, because I thought it could be bad to kind of keep that all inside. Wow. Right? I think Hmm. it's fantastic. And there was a five-day period that was especially reserved for that particular purpose. For grieving. Yeah. But for sharing the grief. So the community kind of comes together around it. The body of the deceased is kept overnight in the house that is is wrapped in skins. The body is wrapped by an old woman or by a woman old enough to get married. And the next day, the body is removed through the back of the house and not through the front door because this would bring bad luck to the hunters and the people could starve. Then, family members carry the body to the grave. They all wear caribou skin clothes and for the next five days, they cry out, We call to the dead to make him return again that we know he cannot hear. They have amazing grieving. Like, it's Mm -hmm. it's fantastic. In some areas, they were required to throw away their clothes that they wore during the handling of the body. Now, the dying person would often tell the relative where he or she wanted to get buried, and an old Inuit tradition has that they'd be buried in the same place where they were born, and they would place a white rock on top of the grave where the head of the deceased is, and this would guard the body against the roaming spirits. If it was first born of the family that died, someone would make snow blocks, and the body would be placed at the top, and when the blocks melted, the body will stay there, and no one is allowed to touch it. Now, this Iroquois tradition might shock you, because they were expected to mourn by showing self-control and avoiding gossip and bad behavior. This would not fly in the South. No, it absolutely (laughs) wouldn't, but it would fly with the Federalist. I can see why they admired them so. So now, in the discussion about the Myrtles... And in Louisiana, Texas, kind of the southern area, a common burial practice are burial mounds. My people did this. Yes, the Caddo tribe. So you're part of the Caddo Adaya tribe. And it's one of the many Caddo federally recognized tribes in the in this kind of part of the country. So in like kind of on East Texas and West Louisiana. So at the peak A.D. 1100, the Caddo were the most highly developed prehistoric culture in Texas. And they are one of the many groups that would go to, like, the Poverty Point area. Mm -hmm. Or at least their ancestors did. Texas even takes its name from the Caddo word Teja, meaning friend. I did not know that. I did not either. We learned something new every day. So they did practice primary internment, a solemn ritual... Uh, Lasting six days, they would bury the dead with special artifacts or offerings, especially beautiful decorated pottery vessels, but also shell ornaments and other items symbolizing their role in society. Sometimes leaders were buried in deep tombs dug through mounds and into the original earth. At other times, leaders were buried among their people, but even then their graves were set apart by size, location, and offerings. Some graves were covered over with a framework of poles and long grass to make a roof-like covering over the bodies, and workers brought in layers and layers of fresh earth to cover the tomb and make a fresh surface on the mound. And one interesting component of this is that the tombs never intersected. They would not intrude upon each other. Even when burials were separated by 
decades or centuries. There was no headstone or durable markers. So anthropologists feel that they may have had perishable markers and that these graves were constantly tended to. So in that same article by Thomas Mann that was in The New Yorker, he talks about how people debated for years about the nature of these mounds, these random hills that they saw everywhere throughout this part of the country. Right, there are mounds. They're not burial mounds, but they're mounds on LSU's campus. Right. Originally, people kind of knew that they were man-made structures, but over time, as the reputation of the Native American kind of took blow after blow in the world of public opinion, people began to say, Everyone knows those are those are naturally occurring phenomena. It's just America. Don't be silly. That's just how the ground looks here. Those savages couldn't do that. They couldn't pile up dirt neatly. Come on. And that's just, you know, one of the many things people have been wrong about. But as time moved on and pilgrims led to colonists, led to 13 colonies, led to America, led once again back to old Hickory. And All Andrew Jackson. roads lead to Jackson. When you were talking about the history of early America, you get to a certain point and you're like, I feel it coming. You know, interestingly, in New Orleans, y'all, you know, listeners may have seen in the news that they've removed four prominent Confederate monuments. From major, highly visible areas of the city. And, you know, there was a lot of talk, like, are we going to have to remove Andrew Jackson's monument in Jackson Square, which is kind of the iconic central point of the French Quarter in front of St. Louis Cathedral. And let's talk about why that might be in question. Andrew Jackson was a ruthless American. He was ruthlessly American. He was a self-made man. He was an orphan. He was a Southerner, a frontiersman, and apparently had quite a temper and really liked to duel. He dueled everybody. Like everybody. And it was said that he'd wear an oversized coat because he was so tall and skinny and that people would miss him because they'd aim at that big target. And Oh, but he wasn't missed every time. No, no, no. Of course he wasn't. He just had several bullets in him. And actually, at the beginning of the story... He'd had a skirmish, not a duel. It was not a proper affair, but he'd gotten into a fight and someone had pulled a gun in a Tennessee hotel and he was still nursing that wound at the time that we begin our tale. So with his arm in a sling, he begins to make his way down to the Tallapoosa River in east central Alabama. It's a major bend in the river with a protruding peninsula and a pair of small islands. On March 27th of 1814, a group of Creek Native Americans with around a thousand warriors and 350 to 500 women and children had founded a little village on this peninsula called Tohopeka Village. They'd come to the area seeking refuge over the previous six months. And Andrew Jackson was headed down to the spot in the Tallapoosa River known as Horseshoe Bend to do something about these Creek Indians. Old Hickory, future President Andrew Jackson, was a major general in the Tennessee militia. The Tennessee Volunteers. Yes, that's, that's why true. The college football team is named that. Yes, it is. We've got the Volunteers and the Rebels in the SEC. <laughs> we are batting a thousand. Now, at the time, his force included around 2,600 volunteers. 
they were volunteers kind of in name only once they showed up they could be executed for deserting and he actually had a 17 year old boy executed for such behavior such a nice guy such a nice guy now in addition to these good european americans he also had a force of about 600 friendly indians nice wording there there were about 100 Creek Indians in this group. During the time leading up to the battle, the American Southeast was dominated by five main tribes. The civilized tribes. Yes, that is what they were called by the people, the European Americans at the time. Some had converted to Christianity and spoke English, then many did retain their native languages and religions. They had taken on some agrarian practices and were, you know, donning European dress there was a lot of intermarriage, and especially within the Cherokee tribe, but this did not have quite the effect you might imagine, because it was mostly male European-American settlers taking Native women as their wives, and especially within the Cherokee tribe, the heritage and family line was traced through a matrilineal pattern. So it was the mother's status in the tribe that would reflect on the children. It's very Jewish of them. I know, right? But no, that's interesting. That there is definitely a larger percentage of that kind of maternal line in Native American groups. Yes. And the Cherokee also recognized warrior women who were known to fight as bravely as men and would take on highly respected and vaunted positions within the tribe. That's badass. It is. I want to do a whole episode on that one day. But as I've mentioned, the Cherokee were one of the five civilized tribes. And like the Chickasaw and Choctaw, they were sort of a self-labeling group. They were easily identifiable as a tribe. They called themselves by that name. They had traditions and cultural patterns and practices that went back you know, forever, they thought they were those things. They were Chickasaw, Choctaw, and Cherokee. Right, versus like the Seminole and the Creek that were more like confederacies of different tribes and groups. Right, the Seminoles kind of have their own story. They were sort of forced together during this period because they were developed out of the remnants of several tribes who had migrated to Florida after its original inhabitants had died from disease or battle. Now, the Creek had a much more complicated hierarchy and structure and a much more loose association. Rather than a unified cultural group, they were more of a political confederacy, as you said, of approximately 50 villages in Georgia and Alabama. And they were all linked by a clan system, which ran through various tribes. But they did encourage ties between small groups. Each child would become part of one of a small clan. And each of the clans was named for a natural element. If, for example, there was a member of the Wind Clan, they could travel to another tribe or village and automatically be taken in by that tribe's Wind Clan, who would help care for them and get them adjusted and acclimated to life in the new group. So there were towns, or Talwas, and they shared this loose association. And those groups included the Alabamas, the Tuskegee, the Muscogee, a lot of Native people from that area. Now, the Creek Confederation was subjected to many European conflicts on the North American continent. The land where they lived was disputed by Britain, France, and Spain throughout the 18th century. And by the time of the French and Indian War, which 
was from roughly 1754 to 1763. Their land was bordered by, on the east by the British, on the south by the Spanish, and on the west by the French. Wow, so they were just like surrounded. A, wow, just like a big bullseye. Yes. Now, the Creek mainly tried to avoid non-Indian conflicts, but they were paid by various European and American groups who hoped to have them as allies in their various disputes over various things over various times. But they were always sort of reluctant mercenaries. Now, around the same time, you have the beginnings of what's called the Pan-Indian Movement. And it began in the 1800s, and it was led by the Shawnee leader Tecumseh and his brother Tenskwatawa, who was also known as the Prophet. And they were based in New Ohio. And they encouraged all the tribes to band together, regardless of past rivalries or conflict, in order to prevent further European-American expansion into Indian land. That's interesting that there was such a movement so early on. Well, I think that they were very, very aware that things were not going well for them. I don't think it's hard to miss, even this early on. So white settlement did continue to press into Creek territory. And it created two main conflicts. They were very concerned because they were witnessing their loss of culture right before their eyes. In order to be considered one of the civilized tribe, as I mentioned, you had to kind of acculturate. You had to kind of give up your native practices. Convert to Christianity. That's a big one. Big fans of that. They the, liked the that. The Europeans were. Oh, and the dress. The dress was very oh, important. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So they were seeing the visible signs you know, the houses were changing, the agrarian practices were changing, the trade practices were changing, and they knew that the further into their territory the white people came, the more of this there was going to be. And there was also this incredible tension between the way that they viewed ownership, which was much more communal and just kind of like the land which we occupy, versus this private, definite ownership that the white settlers were so keen on. You may be familiar with it. You know, it's the kind we have today. I'm not going to call that foreshadowing, but it might be. So there was one Creek chief named Red Eagle. Is William Weatherford. was his Christian name. And he was an Upper Creek leader. And he organized a group called the Red Sticks to follow Tecumseh. Now Tecumseh had said to them, Kill the old chiefs and friends of peace. Kill the cattle and the hogs and the fowls. Do not work. Throw away your plows and everything used by Americans. Shake your war clubs. You will frighten the Americans. So this is, you know, just a little peaceful get together. <laughs> We're just going to, you know, like tell them we don't like it. Right now they're rightfully defending their culture. And their life. lives. <laughs> and their way of life as well. So the Red Sticks, these people were called. And people believe that that name came from the practice of categorizing the Tawas or towns that I mentioned earlier, the part of the Creek Nation, into either white or red Tawas. Now, the white Tawas were responsible for kind of grooming diplomats, while the red Tawas were responsible for creating warriors. I think very Athens and Sparta. I was thinking that. I really was. But other historians believe that they took on this moniker because they carried war clubs, and, you know, they were red from using them. Cool. <laughs> Good job, bro. We lived in a place called Red Stick. Yeah, but that's real. <laughs> they used a red stick to mark their territory. Maybe. Not a bloody club. It was a bloody club. <laughs> it was red clay mud. 
fine. So a civil war broke out between the Upper and Lower Creeks in 1813 when a group of red sticks killed seven European-American settlers in Tennessee in order to prevent a war with the Americans after, you know, some Americans had been killed. The Creek Council ordered that the red sticks who committed this murder be hunted down and executed. I'm sure they took that well. It enraged them. So they went straight to Pensacola, the red sticks. To meet with the Spanish. Oh, yes. And say, hey, we want to kill some Americans. And they said, here you go. Have some, have some things. Have two. Yes, have two guns. Have have some, they didn't give them any guns, but they did give them powder and ammo. Because I don't think they wanted to let go of their guns. But they were all about killing some Americans. Kill some Americans? Yeah, 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 yeah. And so a, a Mississippi militia began to pursue this group of red sticks, these newly armed red sticks, hoping to ambush them at Burnt Corn Creek, which proves that Americans name things well. Now, the skirmish was not a decisive victory for either side, but it did serve to further agitate the red sticks and they became very angry. And so they immediately turned and went to Fort Mims, which is in Southern Alabama. I've been there. And killed 250 people, including some women and children. Most of the casualties were Creek men who had been cooperating with settlers in the U.S. government. There was not enough of a margin of white casualties to dictate that the American government declare war with the red sticks. You have to wonder what the line was. I think it's like a pie chart. So it's more like you have to wonder what the slice of pie looks like. But despite the fact that the U.S. government was not willing to get involved in an official conflict with the red sticks, it was apparently quite a harrowing sight. Quote, Soldiers, women, children, friendly Indians fell together in heaps of mangled bodies, reported a Mississippi contemporary. The dying and the dead scalped, mutilated, and bloody to be consumed by fire or become food for hungry dogs and buzzards. So there's no bias in that account. But the War of 1812 also made the Americans very nervous about the Red Sticks. This was a growing problem because they were very afraid the British might Arm them. Yeah, and that was a common thing. You know, they would arm tribes, such as like in the French and Indian War, mm-hmm. and like last the Mohicans, mm-hmm. in order to fight against their adversary. And then, you know, they'd get something out of it, of course. Right. So they were very nervous that they were going to be supplied with arms by those ridiculous redcoats. Did they still have the damn redcoats? I don't know. They had red sticks. So the Red Sticks then moved to the aforementioned Horseshoe Bend. Now, I will tell you that I know very little about military maneuvering or strategic location, but I have played Risk. This is Kamchatka. This is Kamchatka. This is a genius place to fortify. It's a peninsula. It's surrounded by water, and there's only one way in, one way out, other than the water. And they can contend with that one way in in addition to the very logical and strategically beneficial location they also had a religious leader kind of enchant the area and they made this log barricade a log breastwork across the neck of the peninsula and jackson was very impressed with this work nice wall you got there he loved this wall Walls work, he says. 
It is impossible to conceive of any situation more... Sorry, let me get my Jackson on. <laughs> it is impossible to conceive a situation more eligible for defense than the one that they had chosen. And the skill which they had manifested in their breastwork was really astonishing. It extended across the point in such a direction as that a force approaching would be exposed to double fire while they lay entirely safe behind it. So Jackson was impressed. He was impressed with their breastwork. And as he nears the breastwork, I think we should step back again from the battle at Horseshoe Bend. Again? Again. Please tell me you have a good Jackson quote. I do. We're going to spend a little time meditating on the Indian problem. I don't think that's good for anybody's psyche. It's not. So Jackson rallied his supporters. His volunteers. With flaming rhetoric. And this is one of his speeches. Brave Tennesseans, your frontier is threatened with invasion by the savage foe. Already do they advance toward your frontier with their scalp and knives unsheathed to butcher your wives, your children, and your helpless babes. Time is not to be lost. We must hasten to the frontier or we will find it drenched in the blood of our fellow citizens. Okay, I'm sorry. I mean, that's, that is a harrowing rallying cry. And if you notice, he's already claiming the frontier. This this is the seed of Manifest Destiny. This is where it starts. Now, it's not written, that phrase does not exist, but this is our frontier. But Jackson is, he feels the frontier spirit. Right now, the frontier, just for reference, is Alabama. Right. It's not the West. No. Well, it, the West is Alabama. Ohio. Correct. <gasps> Ohio, it's such a good strategic position. Great farmland, you have the Ohio River Valley. We must take it. We should have that. And you know what? They that's found a, those a, things yeah. in every state all the way to California. That's a nice uh, river valley you got there. Should be a yeah. shame if something uh, happened to it. <coughs> have a blanket. Now, as early as 1794, Jackson was mulling over the Indian problem. In a letter to John McKee, he wrote, I fear that their peace talks are only delusions, and in order to put us off guard, why do we treat with them? Does not experience teach us that treaties answer no other purpose than opening an easy door for the Indians to pass through to butcher our citizens? Congress should act justly and punish their barbarians for murdering her innocent citizens. Has not our citizens been prosecuted for marching into their towns and killing some of them? The Indians appear to be very troublesome on the frontier. And Jefferson had different ideas. He was all about acculturation. He believed that we could bring the Indians into our homes and intermarry and maybe have some, you know, half Indians. And we would. Yeah, know. he was like, let's create a new American race. Yes, like he was they, all they talk about, about in the White Trash book. Yes, and I think we talked about it in that episode, but he was very much about like finding that new American spirit, and I think that he also just had a thing for you know women who were not white. Really, Sam? I do. Really? Hey, they were married in the Mormon Church, <laughs> <laughs> but he s- believed that they could you know kind of all get along, and you know if they couldn't, we would just kick them out of our country. In 1803, he wrote, Should any tribe be foolhardy enough to take up the hatchet at any time, the seizing of the whole country of that tribe and driving them across the Mississippi as the only condition of peace would be an example to others and a furtherance of the final consolidation. So you see there, consolidation, that's his model. 
everything together. All American. No separatism. Melting pot. Melting pot. He really was a founding father. He really did kind of get it. He was bad at it, but he kind of got it. Yeah, we've talked about this on the show before. The melting pot now is seen as as a negative thing because you are expected to lose your culture and create one big American culture. I guess I picture it more like a stew or a gumbo where everything kind of holds onto its own shape, but it all kind of tastes better together. No, you're right. And that's that's a better analogy. Gumbo is always a better analogy. (laughs) So... Tecumseh gave a speech to the Cherokee in 1811, and he said, Everywhere our people have passed away, as the snow of the mountains melts in May. We no longer rule the forest. The game has gone like our hunting grounds. Even our lands are nearly all gone. Yes, my brothers, our campfires are few. Those that still burn, we must draw together. Behold what the white man has done to our people. Gone are the Pequot, the Narragansett, the Powhatan, the Tuscarora, and the Cori. We can no longer trust the white man. We gave him our tobacco and our maize and what happened. Now, there is hardly land for us to grow these holy plants. White men have built castles where the Indians' hunting grounds once were, and now they are coming into your mountain glens. In response to this, a Cherokee leader named Junaluska said, It has been years, many years, since the Cherokee have drawn the tomahawk. Our braves have forgotten how to use the scalping knife. We have learned with sorrow. It is better not to war against our white brothers. So there's tension on every level. Yeah, it's interesting that he's calling out that cultural melting pot, you know, just assimilating in. You're losing not only your culture, but even the ability to fight for it. It's very true. But there are tensions within different tribes, within different factions, within different tribes. There are tensions between the Americans at this time who don't agree on how to deal with Native people. And it's all sort of rising to this fever pitch. So we're at the fever pitch. We have the red sticks that have fortified this peninsula. It's almost like a last stand in a way. Mm -hmm. They've all gathered there and they are prepared to fight to the death with Jackson and his volunteers. So under the leadership of a chief named Minowa and a prophet named Manahi, they do just that. Two Tennessee militia guarded the land side of the peninsula behind the barricade, while the American Indian allies took the waterfront. Now, eventually, as the Americans were pounding the beautiful wall with their heavy artillery and nothing was happening, the American Indian allies on the other bank got impatient. And so they decided to swim the 120 yards to the peninsula. That's impressive. I know. And they stole red stick canoes and went back and kind of gathered up another flank of militiamen and the rest of the allies and brought them onto the peninsula. Now, among those fighting that day was John Ross, who's a major chief in the Cherokee tribe. There was also Major Ridge, who was another very prominent Cherokee, and Sequoia, who would eventually invent the Cherokee syllabary, or alphabet. Fantastic. And so they went and gathered up all of their allies and brought them to the peninsula and began to attack the Red Stick group from the rear. Eventually, they made enough headway to burn the village, and the women and children were taken prisoner. 
Now, they also cut the lines holding their escape canoes in place and set them adrift downriver. Bastards. Yes. So they're trapped. Now, Jackson's still behind the beautiful wall. Just staring at it. He's loving it. He's loving it. He's also hitting it with cannons. Nothing's happening. It's not working. He's stuck. Loving this wall. Loving the wall. This wall seems so effective. But he gets impatient when he sees the smoke because he realizes that the other part of his force is in there. and Having all the fun. Having all the fun. And so he's like, fuck it. And he and his buddies just like climb the wall and go over on foot without the cannons. They have to leave them behind. And they start hand-to-hand combat. Jackson described the action thusly. Muzzle to muzzle through the portholes in which the many enemies' balls were weighted by the bayonets of our muskets. And the hand-to-hand combat continues, but Jackson has the numbers on his side. And eventually, they began to overwhelm the Red Stick force because they were facing the other part of the fighting force coming at them from the other side, so they're surrounded. Now, during this charge, Lieutenant Jesse Bean kept up, quote, a destructive fire on those who attempted to escape. And Captain John Donaldson wrote, Hundreds were killed attempting to swim the river, their heads bobbing along the surface like helpless turtles. And John Coffey, who is Jackson's brother-in-law, wrote, Attempts to cross the river at all points of the bend were made by the enemy, but not one ever escaped. Very few reached the bank, and that few was killed the instant they landed. And Jackson eventually wrote home to his dear wife Rachel, saying that carnage was dreadful. It was dark before we finished killing them. All my love, X's and O's. He writes the best letters to his wife. And to Jack's. Action Jackson. This is pet name. You don't have to know that. You do. It will be on the quiz. Now, one major did die during the conflict, and they did take the time to give him a funeral, and they buried him. It's written that the men bore off the surplus dirt, which remained above the grave, and threw it in the river. They then burned brush over the grave to conceal it from the keen eyes of the savages. Other U.S. soldiers were buried at sea, or at river, I guess. Now, the Red Sticks, on the other hand, did not receive any kind of burial rite. They were left exposed, and their faces were mutilated. Why? For a nose count. What? A nose count. What, what is that? You cut off their nose and you count the noses. Bullshit. No, it really happened. That's insane. There are also stories about them like taking large pieces of skin from the dead men in order to make reins for their horses. Wow. Okay. It's really fucking rough. But anyway, the next day they found a cave where there were 16 wounded red stick men inside. And upon discovering them, they helped them out. They killed them. Oh, I was going to say brokered a peace treaty. No, no, of course not. So 300 women and children were taken prisoner. Captain William Bradford wrote, I thought the numbers killed in former battles had been exaggerated, but I cannot be mistaken in what passes before my own eyes. That 557 Indians were found dead on the grounds is a fact, and that the river ran red with blood is equally true. I never witnessed such carnage. Private Alexander McCulloch wrote, The water was perceptibly bloody, so much so that it could not be used. And mounted rifleman Martin Burke said that the river water, quote, stained his gray horse red as high as the water come up. Wow. Now, there was another man fighting with them at the time named Sam Houston. 
Sounds familiar. He was 21 years old, and he was an ensign. Yeah, one of the founders of Texas. That's true. What the city of Houston is named after. He had a massive fascination with Indian culture later in life. Like He was uh, photographed in full regalia, like full Indian regalia and stuff. I just remember that, and it does make this very interesting. But he wrote, The sun was going down, and it set on the ruin of the Creek Nation, where but a few hours before a thousand brave warriors had scowled on death and their assailants. There was nothing to be seen but volumes of dense smoke rising heavily over the corpses of painted warriors and the burning ruins of their fortifications. And some Creek claimed that only ten red sticks survived the battle, but it was probably closer to 150. Jackson himself called the battle an extermination, and after this, most of the Creek leaders took to referring to him as Mad Old Jackson. So that was pretty accurate. So I read this really great paper um, called Ghost of Horseshoe Bend, Myth, Memory, and the Making of a National Battlefield. It's by Justin Scott Weiss. And he had a really interesting take on the way that the story of Horseshoe Bend is remembered and revered by Americans. No, because like the legend of it has changed with the times. And so he remarks on the status of the park, which there is a national park. If you'd like to go visit it, you are welcome to do so. Please call us, tell us all about it. Since the park's dedications, Americans' understanding of the frontiers changed drastically. The widespread social and political transformation unleashed by the 1960s, such as the rise of Indian activism, the growth of anti-imperialism abroad, and most recently, the genesis of new Western history, have naturally soured the country's once glorious narrative of national expansion. Today, the park goers wax sentimental as they sullenly wind their way through the formerly celebrated and now lonely battlefield. So the story of Horseshoe Bend is interesting because it became a legend, like like the Alamo. It changed and was used as a rallying cry. Yes, actually, remember Horseshoe Bend was a thing. Remember the horseshoe. It was used in so many ways at the time. I mean, like Sam Houston was there. He obviously gained a lot of experience. You know who else was there? Polk bastard he wasn't at horseshoe bend but he was in the tennessee militia davy crockett was there davy crockett he was the king of the wild frontier now it started out being this like massive triumph it was used as just the most patriotic thing in you know since george washington rode that eagle across the sky at sunset and everything turned red white and blue i love that painting yeah i love that it's in velvet i have a t-shirt it's also velvet it's luxurious I want to drape myself in velvet. So the narrative has been framed many ways. Like I said, very patriotic at first. And then it becomes like this romantic image of the frontier. And then it becomes religiously inspired and divinely appointed. Well, of course. The ministers get a hold of it. Well, our expansion, the United States expansion to the West is divinely inspired. Right. A God-given right. Like swept away the pesky Native Americans and made room for us. William Bradford said it, right? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. I'm Native. I can say that. (laughs) And then it became a major talking point for Andrew Jackson's political opposition. So in 1828, when Jackson was running for president for a second time, an inflammatory pamphlet deriding the Battle of Horseshoe Bend noted that the scene was too bloody for the public eye. Concealment and misrepresentation have been practiced to prevent the nation from forming a just and indignant judgment on it. 
And they state that the only reason this has occurred is because there are no red stick survivors to tell the tale of the slaughter. They're all in the grave. Oh, yes. And so then it becomes a rallying cry for westward expansion and then like gets swept up in this new American genre. The Western? Yes, absolutely. Right, glorifying the Western expansion. The bravery of those men. Fighting off them engines. And then comes the noble savage and white guilt. Ah, my favorite. Mm-hmm. But eventually, Jackson would be remembered as a peacemaker who carried out this necessary task in order to clear the way for America and make the citizens of the country safe. And you see this in George Bancroft's writing upon the death of Jackson. And he was a prominent historian at the time. He wrote that, Who has not heard of the red sticks and the terrible deeds when their ruthless cruelty spared neither sex nor age? When the infant and its mother and the planter and his family who fled for the refugee... At Fort Mims were slain. The cry of the West demanded Jackson for its defender. He proclaimed that the nation, through scenes of blood, the avenging heroes sought the only path to the peace. Right, but people were calling Jackson out for it, which I was kind of shocked to find out. I I don't know if it was necessarily just for pure political gain or what, but I mean, they were calling for him to pay restitution to the Cherokee Nation. Right, and eventually $25,000 was paid to the Cherokee Nation for the, quote, outrages committed on their property by the Tennessee Volunteers. But people were very skeptical because Jackson profited so much from his Indian warring. Shocking. Personally. Now, he and Coffee both, you know, bought up land that they took during the Indian Wars, and they also handed a lot of it off to their friends and grew lots of cotton, had lots of slaves, did lots of southern things there on Indian land. There were pamphlets at the time that compared Jackson to Caesar and Cromwell, and Henry Clay was very fond of using those analogies. I mean, do you really want to be compared to Caesar? No, no, that you don't. Oh, that, that was, was his the point. Negative. Yeah, oh, okay. he's a detractor. Now, these arguments intensified when he ran for president for the first time in 1824 and again in 1828. Chapman Johnson wrote, Impartial posterity will refuse Jackson the rays of true glory when the review of history of his Indian campaigns, and especially when they read the stories of the cold-blooded massacre at the Horseshoe. And there was a Jackson broadside issued by John Benz called the Coffin Handbill, which cited his merciless cruelty and the atrocities committed at the hands of, quote, a butcher. In the Maryland Torchlight, it was written, There is nothing more revolting about the Battle of Horseshoe Bend than General Jackson's own account of the affair. It's appalling and soul-harrowing, almost beyond parallel. And the New Orleans Argus wrote, The Battle at Horseshoe Bend was an indelible stain upon the character of our country. A stain that just won't come out. Yeah, that's a thing, apparently, in New Orleans. (laughs) It's not New Orleans. But... You know, Jackson had his defenders as well. There was a toast made to Jackson's detractors at Mount Pleasant. To the demagogues and promoters of the faction, may their bosoms be warmed by a hedgehog and their livers preyed upon by a vulture until they repent their folly. Keep your hedgehogs away from my bosoms. Oh my! Jackson himself did defend the campaign. 
He said the fiends of Tallapoosa will no longer murder our women and children or disturb the quiet of our borders. Their midnight flambeau will no more shine upon the victims of their infernal orgies. What the hell? Just, you know, off the cuff. I think he was. He would have loved Twitter. So one interesting side note about Jackson. Oh, yes. There are many. Is that following the Battle of Tallahatchie near Talladega, which was in the early Creek Red Stick campaign on November 3rd of 1813, which, of course, was described by historians as a massacre. Seems like most things Jackson did are described in that way. Well, I mean, he did systematically oversee the murder of 186 men. Fine. For, and I think they cited it as a massacre for good reason. Lieutenant Keith Call wrote, We found as many as eight or ten dead bodies in a single cabin. Some of the cabins had taken fire, and half-consumed human bodies were seen amidst the smoke and ruins. In other instances, dogs had torn and feasted on the mangled bodies of their masters. And, of course, Davy Crockett, in Who his was there? immortal eloquence, said, We shot them like dogs. He was Jackson's personal scout at the time. Now, among the 84 captives was a young Creek boy about a year old that Jackson just decided to keep, and they called him Lincoya. Now, according to legend and a plaque on the site, General Andrew Jackson found a dead Creek Indian woman embracing her living infant son because of his compassion. No, yes, but I think Jackson, I think compassion. Mm -hmm. General Jackson took the infant to Fort Strother, where he nursed him back to health. General Jackson then took the baby to his family home, the Hermitage, in Nashville, Tennessee, where he and his wife, Rachel, named the child Lincoya, and adopted, raised, loved, and educated him as their son. To Rachel, Jackson wrote, I send on a little Indian boy for Andrew to Huntsville with a request to Colonel Pope to take care of him until he is sent on. All his family is destroyed. I love that change to like passive action, voice. Like, no, uh, th- that's what I find so interesting. Yeah. It's like, I didn't kill anyone. They just, you know, whoops-a-daisies. I tried to stop them. I don't know what happened. Now, Don Peterson wrote in Indians in the National Family, there's a lot of people in the early 19th century who use the language of incorporation, who temporarily house and educate Native children, but they're imagining it as part of a larger adoption project, which is the assimilation of Indian people. Having them adopt U.S. culture and values, they're also eventually thinking of Indians as adoptable into the U.S. national family. They're conceiving of the body politic itself as a family. So Lincoln landed somewhere between the white family members and the black slaves. So he was, as Jackson said, sent for his son, Jackson Jr., who is four years older. And he was described as Andrew Jr.'s pet. Pet. P-E-T-T. Now, my optimism and my eternal infatuation with early American history and, you know, my childhood obsession with presidents wants to believe that he meant pet like my dear sweet little one. But I think he probably meant pet in like the family pet way. I agree. And, you know, he raised him. He did educate him. He even appealed to James Monroe to allow him to attend West Point, though It didn't really work out because he died at 16 years old of tuberculosis at the Hermitage. Now, some people speculate that Jackson took Lincoya into his family because he himself was an orphan. And this, you know, may have pulled at his heartstrings. I feel like that's giving him too much credit. I'm sorry. Jackson was a man of many contradictions. And 
it's hard to say. Like, who knows? You just had a weird day. <laughs> I don't know, man. I'm just feeling really weird. I thought I'd just take the baby. But there's another way to read it, as there always is with Jackson. And this is from a Slate article written about the topic. He says, Lincoya was a living argument for the supremacy of the white way of life. Jackson killed Creek people, took Creek land, and raised their children as his own. A primal act of domination. So Horseshoe Bend ended badly. I think we can all agree. And for all intents and purposes, this battle did mark the end of the Creek War. Jackson went against orders from Washington. He's going to keep doing that. Mm -hmm. And negotiated a treaty on his own at Fort Jackson. The Creek were forced to cede around 23 million acres. And that was about half their territory. Red Eagle had not actually been present for the battle at Horseshoe Bend. And if you'll remember, he's the one who started this whole red stick to sign the treaty. And he did surrender to Jackson. And he received a promise of safe passage for women and children, which is nice of them. And also was allowed to retain his farm in southern Alabama. So things worked out for Red Eagle. But what happened to Horseshoe Bend after the battle? What do you think happened? I don't know. It depends on who settled there. Because if you had the... American settlers come in, I would just assume they just plowed over everything and built up a settlement. But if the Native Americans still kind of controlled the land, they probably never went there. Well, it was still part of the Creek Territory at this time. And you're right, no one went back. So from roughly 1814 to 1836, they retained control of it, and they never went back for a variety of practical and cultural reasons. Now, around 3,000 Creek had died during the war, and around 1,900 of those, or 40% of the able-bodied male population, were warriors, and that represented about 40% of the able-bodied male population. So they literally like, cut it in half. Mm-hmm. So they had seen their homes destroyed, land trampled, their villages were gone, and they became refugees. And Jackson wrote to his wife, Rachel. Again, he writes her the sweetest letters. To see the distressed situation of the Indians is enough to make humanity shudder. How can he say that? I don't know, but I feel like he means it. It's weird. He's really difficult. He's the guy that, like, gets in a fight with somebody and then buys him a beer. Yeah, he is. He totally is. So, Justin Scott Weiss writes... Even if the survivors did remain in the area of Horseshoe Bend, the task of burying anywhere from five to 800 bodies would have required a tremendous amount of strength and numbers, neither of which the Creek people had. So in addition to the practical issues surrounding five to 800 human bodies to do something with, there were cultural taboos as well, and that kind of dissuaded people from going back to the Bend. In Creek tradition... The bones of a lifeless body attracted ghosts, and those could only be driven away by burning a particular type of cedar incense. Weiss says, The physical remains and burial hole, too, required a tremendous amount of precision, ranging from body's posture and wardrobe to the pit's depth and location. If not performed carefully, the individual task with burying the dead could suffer horrible consequences, ranging from death to disease to poor harvest. Chief Minowa had an intense, superstitious dread of Horseshoe Bend. I really can't blame him. <laughs> in 1830, he explained to his biographer that a malign influence existed at Horseshoe Bend, fatally hostile to his people and himself. So they just stayed there. They were never buried. 
That's one hell of an ancient Indian burial ground. I'm not going anywhere near that national park. <laughs> it's beautiful. I'm sure it is. Now, interestingly enough, there was a huge fascination that cropped up during the antebellum period with the repatriation of war debt. The antebellum Americans had a feeling that they needed to go out and find all the bones of the fallen heroes of the Revolutionary War and the War of 1812 and bring them home and give them proper military funerals. Obsession with death. Yes. Yes, you'll see. That's the thing. But in 1839 in Dudleyville, Alabama, they decided they needed to go to Horseshoe Bend and reclaim the bones of Major Montgomery. You know that discussion happened around a few pints of beer. It definitely did. And even on the day of the repatriation, there was a party with drinking and a parade of woodland lasses. Tell me more. I don't know more. I want to. I want to. Stop. Tell me more. More about the woodland lasses. I don't know. They paraded, apparently. And had syphilis. Yeah, definitely. And then they marched out of town with, quote, a committee of gentlemen accompanied by a soldier who'd fought in the battle and a Negro who acted as a drummer. And they went northwest in search of the lost battlefield of Horseshoe Bend. And after several hours marching around in the woods... They discovered a beautiful wall. This wall is fantastic. This wall is fantastic. And so they went to look for the burial site of Major Montgomery. And, quote, about two feet from the surface, the bones were found in a state of considerable decay. And so they returned with his remains and found that the locals had prepared a coffin and a grave for him near Main Street. And they buried him with full military honors and several locals gave eulogies. And then I suppose there was probably more drinking and with any luck, some woodland lasses. It's an interesting just juxtaposition between the two different cultures. Right. They go back to find him. And bring him home. Side note, wasn't him. Really? Do they know what it was or who it was? No, they don't know who it was, but they do... In my my heart of hearts, I know it was a Native American. Oh, I'm sure it was. I feel so much. It most likely is. It's like just statistically. Two feet down. Well, just statistically. Yeah. Just like how many Native American bodies were there? If you go to Horseshoe Bend, please call us. (laughs) But... They do have a marker where his grave actually is now. So Jackson would eventually go on to become president. And as president, he would, you know, ignore Washington. Like the Supreme Court. Yes, he ignored the Supreme Court decision, known as the Worcester decision made in 1831, which recognized American Indian ownership of the lands. And he decided to forcibly remove the five civilized tribes from the southeastern United States and send them to Indian Territory, or... Oklahoma. That's the one with Surrey with a fringe on top. Oklahoma. So this forced relocation would come to be known as... The Trail of Tears. Or the trail where they cried. So Kenneth C. Davis writes in his book, Don't Know Much About History, which now want to be his friend, Hollywood has left us the impression that the Great Indian Wars came in the Old West during the late 1800s, a period that many think of simplistically as the cowboy and Indian days. In fact... It was a mopping up effort. By the time Indians were nearly finished and their subjugation complete, their numbers decimated. The killing, enslavement, and land theft that had begun with the arrival of Europeans. But it may have reached a nadir when it became federal policy under President Andrew Jackson. In 1830, Congress passed the Indian Removal Act. Fun fact, 
Davy Crockett, opposed it. Jackson signed the bill into law. But the Cherokee Nation fought this decision, appealing to the Supreme Court. Awesome. So, in 1832, the Worcester v. Georgia case was heard and ruled upon, and John Marshall ruled in favor of the Cherokee Nation. Which is who Marshall University is named after. I didn't know that. So, there needed to be a treaty, and that would need to be ratified by Congress. Now, you might remember these two leading Cherokee figures that I mentioned. John Ross, who is the principal chief, and he wanted to stay on the land. And Major Ridge, and later his son, Elias Boudinot, and they advocated removal. Now, Ridge and Ross had fought with Jackson at the Battle of Horseshoe. But Ridge and his supporters signed a treaty of New Dakota in 1835, and the Senate passed the resolution with a single vote. Now, Ridge signed this treaty on behalf of all the Cherokee, but he represented the minority. He agreed to cede the land the United States government, but the majority of the Cherokee people did not agree with that. On behalf of the entire nation, he signed over the property. Many people opposed this action, and among them was Ralph Waldo Emerson. So he wrote a letter to everyone's favorite president, Martin Van Buren. Number eight, y'all. Wait, are we making another Seinfeld reference? In 1836. Sir, my communication respects the sinister rumors that fill this part of the country concerning the Cherokee people. The interest always felt in the aboriginal population, an interest naturally growing as that decays, has been heightened in regard to this tribe. In the name of God, sir, we ask you, if this be so, do the newspapers rightly inform us, men and women... With pale and perplexed faces, meet one another in the streets and churches here and ask if this be so. We have inquired if this be a gross misrepresentation from the party opposed to the government and anxious to blacken it with the people. We have looked at the newspaper of different parties and find a horrid confirmation of the tale. We are slow to believe it. We hoped the Indians were misinformed and that their remonstrance was premature and will turn out to be a needless act of terror. Sir, does this government think that the people of the United States are becoming savage and mad? From their mind are the sentiments of love and good nature wiped clean out? The soul of man, the justice, the mercy that is the heart in all men from Maine to Georgia does abhor this business. You, sir, will bring down that renowned chair in which you sit into infamy if your seal is set to this instrument of perfidy. In the name of this nation, hitherto, the sweet omen of religion and liberty will stink to the world. And now the steps of this crime follow each other so fast at such fatally quick time that the millions of virtuous citizens, whose agents the government are, have no place to interpose and must shut their eyes until the last howl and wailing of these tormented villages and tribes shall afflict the ear of the world. So Ralph Waldo Emerson is one of my favorite writers, and I think that this is amazing, just the political fervor he's worked himself into. This is a man who completely and totally championed the American spirit of self-reliance and could not bring himself to entertain the idea that the democratic government that he loved and lauded would impose upon another 
sovereign people this way. I think it's interesting to note, and I don't think that it's talked about much now, is that there were lots of people opposing this at the time. I mean, even the Supreme Court was saying, no, no, no. There are people. was like, screw you guys. I mean, I do what I want. So after this impassioned letter from Emerson, in 1838, the United States began the removal of American Indians to the Oklahoma Territory. On May 17, 1838, General Winfield Scott arrived with around 7,000 men and began the removal. Men, women, and children were taken from their land, herded into makeshift forts with minimal facilities and food, and then forced to march thousands of miles. Some made the trip by boat in equally horrible conditions. Now, John Ross appealed to Scott to allow him to lead his own people to Oklahoma because the white men were driving them too hard and not paying attention to their needs, just really, really horrible conditions. And he was granted that permission. So John Ross, the acting chief, who was only one-eighth Cherokee, by the way, but because that matrilineal passage that we talked about was able to come to the station, he was able to lead his people to Oklahoma. He organized them into smaller bands so that they could forage for food as they moved west. And under Ross's command, the losses of life were reduced compared to white leadership. But around 4,000 Cherokees died as a result of removal. Now, you might remember Major Ridge signed that contract along with his son Elias. And they were both executed for signing the Treaty of Dakota. Sounds like they may have deserved it if anyone does. Yeah, maybe, you know, I don't know. But John Ross was suspected of killing the man who signed the treaty. Was he, like, arrested? Like, captured? No, it was just always a suspicion. But his son, Alan, eventually confessed that he had known about the killing, and his father had not. And he wrote this account on December 25th of 1890. He claimed that after watching men sign a pact saying that they would kill the traitors, they ordered him to stay away. He said, I was to go to my father's home that evening before the execution and for me to stay with my father that night until the next day and if possible to keep him from finding out what was being done another legend that comes about because of the trail of tears is the legend of the cherokee rose the mothers of the cherokee grieved so much that the chiefs prayed for a sign that the mother's spirits might be lifted and give them strength to care for their children and from that day forward a beautiful new flower a rose grew wherever a mother's tear fell on the ground. And now this rose is white for the mother's tears. It has a gold center for the gold taken away from from the Cherokee lands. It has seven leaves on each stem that represent the seven Cherokee clans that made the journey. And to this day, the Cherokee rose prospers along the root of the Trail of Tears. There are two surviving accounts that I really thought were powerful. There's one account by a woman named Lucy Lowry Hoyt Keys. And she provided this to the Bureau of Indian Affairs when they were collecting stories about the Trail of Tears. She says, The graves of their kindred forsaken would be desecrated by the hand of the white man. The very air seemed to fill with an undercurrent of inexpressible sadness and regret. Some of the Cherokees remained in their homes, determined not to leave. For these, soldiers were sent by Georgia, and they were gathered up and driven at the point of the bayonet into the camp with the others. They were not allowed to take any of their household stuff, but were compelled to leave it, as they were, with only the clothes which they had on. One old, very old man asked the soldiers to allow him time to pray once more with his family in his dear old home before he left it forever. The answer was with brutal oath. No, 
No time for prayers. Go. At the same time, giving him a rude push toward the door. Indians were evicted, and the whites entered, taking full possession of everything left. The second account comes from Private John Burnett, who is a 2nd Regiment, 2nd Brigade, Mounted Infantry. This is a letter that he wrote to his children on his 89th birthday, December 11th of 1890. He begins by telling them how he came upon a Cherokee boy who had been shot in 1829. I found a young Cherokee who had been shot by a roving band of hunters and who had eluded his pursuers and concealed himself under a shelving rock. Weak from loss of blood, the poor creature was unable to walk and almost famished for water. I carried him to a spring and bathed and bandaged the bullet wound and built a shelter out of bark peeled from a dead chestnut tree. I nursed and protected him, feeding him on chestnuts and roasted deer meat. When he was able to travel, I accompanied him to the home of his people and remained so long that I was given up for lost. He went to assist in the removal of the Cherokee from their land because he was fluent in several languages and he acted as an interpreter. He made his way up to Smoky Mountain Country in May of 1838. He says, I witnessed the execution of the most brutal order in the history of American warfare. I saw the helpless Cherokee arrested and dragged from their houses and driven at bayonet point into the stockades. In the chill of the drizzling rain of October morning, I saw them loaded like cattle or sheep into 645 wagons and started toward the west. I can never forget the sadness and solemnity of that morning. Chief John Ross led in prayer. And when the bugle sounded, the wagon started rolling. Many of the children rose to their feet and waved their little hands goodbye to their mountain homes, knowing they were leaving them forever. Many of these helpless people did not have blankets, and many of them had been driven from home barefooted. He goes on to describe the freezing temperature, lack of blankets and shoes and fire, and awful suffering. He says the trail of exiles was a trail of death. He speaks of one night where he saw 22 people die of Quote, ill treatment, cold, and exposure, also pneumonia. He describes sleeping on the ground or in wagons. He describes Elizabeth Ross, the wife of John Ross, also known as Quete, as a beautiful, noble-hearted woman. And she, he says that she died a martyr to childhood, given her only blanket for the protection of a sick child. She rode thinly clad through a blinding sleet of snowstorm and developed pneumonia and died in the still hours of a bleak winter night, with her head resting on Lieutenant Gregg's saddle blanket. He said on that night where she died, he was to be relieved at midnight, but he couldn't go to bed. Out of sympathy for John Ross, he stayed awake, and at daylight, he assisted in her burial. She was put unconfined into a shallow grave by the roadside. It was unmarked, and they moved on. He says, when on guard duty at night, I have many times walked my beat in my blouse in order that some sick child might have the warmth of my overcoat. And then he goes on to describe an encounter with a teamster named Ben McDonald, who was using a whip on a feeble old man in order to get him into a wagon. The sight of that old and nearly blind creature quivering under the lashes of a bull whip was too much for me. I attempted to stop McDonald and ended in a personal encounter. He lashed me across the face the wire tip of his whip cutting a bad gash in my cheek. The little hatchet that I carried in my hunting days was in my belt, and MacDonald was carried unconscious. He was threatened court-martial. He says the long and painful journey to the West ended March 26th of 1839, 
with 4,000 silent graves reaching from the foothills of the Smoky Mountains to what is known as Indian Territory in the West. And so as people died, they would just kind of bury them where they died, right? Yes. He describes several instances of that kind of thing. He says, in one home, death had come during the night. A little sad-faced child had died and was lying on a bearskin couch, and some women were preparing the little body for burial. All were arrested and driven out leaving the child in the cabin. I don't know who buried the body. In another home was a frail mother, apparently a widow with three small children, one just a baby. When they told her she must go, the mother gathered the children at her feet and prayed a humble prayer in a native tongue and patted the old family dog on the head and told the faithful creature goodbye. With the baby strapped on her back and leading the child with each hand, she started on her exile. But the task was too great for that frail mother. A stroke of hot failure relieved her sufferings, and she sunk and died with the baby on her back, and her other two children clinging to her hands. He ends the letter by saying, Murder is murder, and somebody must answer. Somebody must explain the streams of blood that flowed in Indian country in the summer of 1838. Somebody must explain the 4,000 silent graves that mark the trail of the Cherokees to their exile. I wish I could forget it all. But the picture of 645 wagons lumbering over the frozen ground with a cargo of suffering humanity still lingers in my memory. So they have made an attempt to locate some of these silent graves along the Trail of Tears. And they found that many times people would try to find a nearby cemetery and bury the bodies of the dead among those already resting there and they've done geological surveys in an attempt to locate some of the remains that have heretofore been silent to our Burnett's words because he did have a way with them and so the american government has had a very unique relationship with this because there's been just a kind of almost like i don't know what to do with them it seems for so long that's absolutely true I mean, there was the Antiquities Act of 1906, which protected archaeological sites on federal and tribal land, making it a crime to alter, damage, or destroy any object of antiquity. I'm going to say that's a move in the right direction. It is, especially at the time. But they also would give any of these objects over to the scientists. Now, prior to the 70s, federal recognition of tribes was done through kind of this ad hoc system of treaties or through administrative decisions through executive branch. I'm sorry, you're not real. We haven't officially, legislatively taken advantage of you. Only in a roundabout way. And so in the 1960s, there's what's called the termination period where they began to terminate benefits to several tribes. Ultimately, 61 tribes were terminated, meaning they lost federal funding, prior to 1976. Now, there was a growing white guilt on the left and a desire of the right to end what they perceived as the collectivist and socialistic nature of reservations intersected, and they began to dismantle this reservation system. I'm going to assume that didn't go over well, given the political climate and, you know, that people know they can talk back. Right. So this is where the American Indian movement began, which is also known as red power. Like black power, but red? No, true. They were very emboldened and inspired by the civil rights movement and the positive changes they were able to push forward. 
And American pop culture had already begun to kind of readdress the way Native Americans were portrayed in Hollywood and in history books. Films like Little Big Man, which if you watch it now, looks so super racist. racist. There's like so red face racist. everywhere. We watched it in one of my film study classes. But also, Isn't Dustin Hoffman play an Indian? Yes, yeah, he does. Not. And also books like Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee. Which actually does matter. Yes, and there was a good uh, miniseries based on it mm-hmm. a few years ago. So popular perception began to change as well. So the American Indian movement grew fairly quickly. They began holding protests nationwide. This included the taking of Alcatraz. Which we might do a whole episode on. Yeah, we're going to do an Alcatraz episode one day. But the protests were designed to get media attention. So one of the main leaders was Russell Means, and he was a Lakota. And he led the capture of the Mayflower replica on Thanksgiving Day oh in 1970. Oh my God, so much respect. That is so right, so right. But there was a lot of strong rhetoric going around. Some quotes including, We are prisoners in our own country. Whoever gave you white men the right to do that? We are ready to fight and die for what we believe in, just like the people who lived here 100 years ago. So the Washington Post reports, Indians converging on D.C. for rallies. Washington Post has always known where it's at. So proclaiming, we come here in peace. Leaders of a coalition of 250 of the nation's 300 American Indian tribes began converging in Washington yesterday for a week of activities aimed at dramatizing the traditions and the needs of their people. So they planned a contingent of numerous caravans that would leave Seattle, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Rapid City, and Denver, and trek east towards D.C. They called this the Trail of Broken Treaties. Because they're good at names. So they would stop at many reservations and spiritual sites and pick up additional Native peoples for their demonstrations, all culminating at Washington, D.C. prior to the 1972 presidential election between George McGovern and Richard Nixon. Which, buddy. Yep, tricky dick. Yours What's he up to? Well, in a major address on July 8th of 1970, Nixon had said, it is long past the time that the Indian policies of the federal government began to recognize and build upon the capacities and insights of the Indian people. The time has come to break decisively with the past and to create conditions for a new era in which the Indian future is determined by Indian acts and Indian decisions. See, Nixon gets a bad rap. Like, really, in light of recent events, Nixon just doesn't seem like that much of a dick. He promptly denied a meeting with these people. Okay, so maybe history has something to work with. And so Robert Burnett, a Sioux, said, We are putting Americans on notice that something must be done, or we may have to take things in our own hands. So they deliberately chose the election season to get a lot of press coverage. They smart. They's important. (laughs) Well, they were trying to just get press about this, trying to have the U.S. actually fulfill its treaty obligations with Indian tribes, and for protection of Indian rights to water rights, mineral rights, and land rights, saying Indian activists have charged that the Bureau of Indian Affairs has become a dumping ground for incompetent government workers while maintaining that the agency is insensitive to the concerns of Indians. That's probably true. 
The group was authorized by the U.S. Park Police to erect about 30 symbolic teepees in Potomac Park West on the banks of the Potomac River. The Potomac. Potomac, yeah. So whenever they met with the Department of Indian Affairs, they felt that they were not being listened to. And there was a misunderstanding about lodgings and things that they had been promised previously. Oh, you don't say. You so don't say. The, the government po- didn't yeah. come through on the things they said they were going to come through on. Well, yeah. So the Post reports, Friday night. Most of the more than 500 American Indians inside the Bureau of Indian Affairs building armed themselves with clubs, knives, and a few bows and arrows and put on war paint for what they predicted might be another wounded knee. The famous 1890 battle in which an army regiment massacred 250 to 300 Sioux Indians, most of them women and children. Many young men stripped to the waist and painted their chest, bedecked themselves in armbands and necklaces. A few even had leather leggings and moccasins. The older men wore fewer markings, whooped less, but also carried pieces of pipes and broken chair legs. they're badass. So on November 3rd, the Washington Post reports, 500 Indians here seize U.S. building. Yes, yes, yes. Good on you. They said they were renaming it the Native American Embassy. Good job. Now, they did allow all the workers to leave, and they were they did it in a pretty orderly fashion. Of course, oh, really? They barricaded the doors they with whatever furniture wall? they could find. Beautiful wall. Jerry Rogers, a 28-year-old Chippewa, said, We will no longer be put down. We will no longer be shoved off into the back corner. We want what we want, and we remember that before the white man came, we lived in peace. Um, as much peace as the Europeans did. Okay, fine. Yeah, sure. So while they were there, they ransacked the Bureau of Indian Affairs files. Oh my God, it's like the media burglary. It's like that. So that showed scandalous, if not criminal, exploitation of Indians by senators, congressmen, BIA officials, and corporate interests. I'm pretty sure if you raid any bureau in Washington, that's exactly what you'll find out is happening. Probably so. Russell Means said the documents showed collusion, at least, in ripping off Indian lands, water, fishing, agricultural, and mineral rights. Now, they also took artifacts and Native American paintings as well. Now, representatives pledged their support. The People's Party presidential candidate, Dr. Benjamin Spock... Dr. Spock, which I forgot he even ran, appeared in person and met with the Native American group. So obviously he gets no political cachet for doing so. We forget he even ran, even though he met with them in person. I think he's more known for his book. Books. And his Rugrats appearances. So the Washington Post did post a story entitled, Protests by Indians Sought an End to Paternalism, highlighting many of the native criticism towards the federal government. The Post reported on the broad spectrum of American Indian opinion regarding government interference in their lives, remarking the opinions range from, quote, outright separatism to the most prevailing view that Indians are entitled to a greater voice and direct federal policy. Yeah, that paternalism line is really interesting because from the beginning, that was kind of the line that the federal government took. As soon as there was a federal government, the Native people were taught to think of Washington as the great white father. Very interesting. Now, just like the media burglary, they took the documents, they hid them. And this, Did they take them to the post? Well, in this case, they spread them out across the country. And they did contact the post, allowed them to come and examine the files, and they would fly to this remote area, go to a hotel room that was guarded by a Native American strongman. I wish I'd written the description down. It was fantastic. My name is Fuck With Me Not. 
And they were able to examine the documents, and they would then have to fly to another remote area, a guarded hotel room, and examine other documents. They were a clan with a plan. But some documents described multi-million dollar land deals in South Dakota Black Hills. Others revealed how the White House played politics with Indian rights. There are poignant papers like, with accounts of an Indian woman whose foot was broken by the police but was left to spend the night in jail untended. But it really, they just prove that Native American people were being taken advantage of left and right. One thing they did find was a memo written by Vice President Agnew. Oh, Lord. So he had written a memo to the Interior Secretary. So the Bureau of Indian Affairs is a f- under the Department of the Interior, on behalf of George Olmsted, a banking tycoon. Oh, well, I'm he, sure yeah. that it's just going to be mm. like, leave them alone. They have so many rights. No. He went to establish an American Indian National Bank, oh. which would have outlets on major reservations. And, you know, he would hold it in escrow until they could take over it. And, you know, just get a little bit of the profits. Yeah, just a and little some bit. Fees. Just little, some fees. Fees and things. Hmm. And, you know, also confirmed many tribes had been exploited for their water rights. Now, the movement began to grow, and eventually, on October 2nd of 1978, they established the federal acknowledgement process, which we kind of discussed. It is very difficult to establish your tribe as a federally recognized tribe because you have to prove that you've been continuously a tribe since 1900. Right, my tribe had hell getting federally recognized. It's only recently happened. And that, that the majority of the tribe had existed as distinct community. Right, because we were Caddo Adai and not just Caddo. It was a whole thing. And I believe it finally kind of came to fruition around 2005. Now, one person that had a huge hand in some of the changes in how the federal government deals with Native Americans is Maria Pearson, also known as Running Moccasin. And she was a member of the Sioux tribe, and she's described as a peacemaker, warrior, cross-cultural community builder, American Indian activist, tribal elder, cultural preservation consultant, Native American issues advisor, founding mother of the modern Indian repatriation movement, Nobel Peace Prize nominee, local unsung hero, religious advisor, and the Rosa Parks of the NAGPRA. You know, my bio just says podcaster. Yeah, right? That's it. So in the early 70s, Pearson was appalled that the skeleton remains of Native Americans were treated differently from white remains. Now, her husband, an engineer with the Iowa Department of Transportation, told her that both Native American and white remains were uncovered during road construction in Glenwood, Iowa. The remains of the 26 white burials were quickly reburied, and the remains of Native American mother and child were sent to a lab for study instead. Uh Uh-uh. She protested Governor Robert Ray. Good. Finally gaining an audience after sitting outside his office in traditional attire. (laughs) She told him, you can give me back my people's bones, and you can quit digging them up. Running moccasin. So this led to the passage of the Iowa Burials Protection Act of 1976, the first legislative act in the United States that specifically protected Native American remains. So eventually, in 1990, took forever, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act was passed. 
So this had the rights of Native American lineal descendants, Indian tribes, Native Hawaiian organizations, with respect to the treatment, repatriation, and disposition of Native American human remains, funerary objects, sacred objects, and objects of cultural patrimony, referred to collectively in the statute as cultural items, (laughs) with which they can show a relationship of lineal descent or cultural affiliation. One major purpose of this was to encourage museums to work with Native American tribes to determine if an object was from that tribe and to offer them, you know, like reburial to, you know, proper curation if they wanted it. It also provided protection for Native American burial sites and encouraged in situ preservation and to work with traditional users of the land to determine where sites might be. So one problem is that finding of the cultural affiliation, you have to prove that you're people. Hmm. And so there's a really interesting story about the Kenwick man. And we couldn't do a better job than the now canceled podcast Undone did about this. And by doing a point you that way, if you want to find out more, it's an excellent, excellent story about repatriation of a Native American remains to the appropriate tribe and the legal battle that ensued to try to get that to happen. So since legislation passed, the human remains of approximately 32,000 individuals have been returned to their respective tribes. Now this is including all the major museums in the U.S., including the Smithsonian. Nearly 670,000 funerary objects, 120,000 unassociated funerary objects, and 3,500 sacred objects were returned. So interestingly, Osamequin, who signed the first treaty with the Pilgrims after they arrived on the Mayflower, promising in 1621 in the village that became the Plymouth, Massachusetts, to protect each other. According to the Wampanoas, the peace lasted for decades. Now, Osamiquan was buried on a hilltop in Warren overlooking Narragansett Bay. His remains and artifacts were scattered when a railroad was built through the burial site nearly two centuries after his death and archaeologists and local residents dug there. Now, the objects belonging to him became part of the collection in seven different museums. Now, the Wampanoag tribe of Cape Cod, Massachusetts, along with members of the tribe from Gayhead and the Asanat band of the Wampanoag, helped to use this legislation and to recover his remains. And a private ceremony is planned for this month of May in 2017, to rebury him. Now, the study of the Native American peoples of North America is something that has led to the removal of many Native American remains from their resting places and the appropriation by museums at all of those remains. And so I thought it would be worth taking a moment to look at the various ways that Native cultures have been studied by European-American counterparts over the ages. And to me, one of the finest examples of study is Edward Curtis. And so he is the photographer that did these amazing, beautiful Native American photographs like in the 1800s. And by the way, I want the big book for Christmas. Okay. So his name was actually Edward Sheriff Curtis because of course it was. And he was born in Minnesota in 1868, but he later moved west to Seattle, and he was working with a camera by age 17, and he was active in the 20th century. 
and he was sort of racing to preserve the culture of the Native Americans. His first portrait of an American Indian was taken in 1895 of Princess Angeline, who was the daughter of a chief in the Seattle area. He spent 30 years with the backing of people like J.P. Morgan and Teddy Roosevelt, who actually had him photograph his daughter's wedding and do family portraits. Interesting. Not at all surprising though, right? (laughs) No. (laughs) But he spent 30 years living among the tribes, and he produced a work entitled The North American Indian, and it was called by the New York Herald, the most ambitious publishing project taken on since the production of the King James Bible. And this is from an article in Smithsonian Magazine. Yet it was a chance meeting in 1898 that set Curtis on the path away from his studio and his family. He was photographing Mount Rainier when he came upon a group of prominent scientists who had become lost. Among the group was the anthropologist George Bird Grinnell, an expert in Native American cultures. Curtis quickly befriended him, and the relationship led to the young photographer's appointment as the official photographer for the Harriman Alaska Expedition of 1899, led by railroad magnate Edward H. Harriman, and including the naturalist John Muir and zoologist C. Hart Merriman. So two still extremely prominent known scientists like Muir was a conservationist and Muir Woods in California with all the large sequoias is named after him. And sequoias are named after sequoia. Sequoia. (laughs) For two months, Curtis accompanied two dozen scientists photographing everything from glaciers to Eskimo settlements. When Grinnell asked him to come visit the Blackfeet in Montana the following year, Curtis did not hesitate. He went on to photograph many tribes, but in Montana, he fell in love with what he called primitive customs and traditions of the Piquan people, including the mystifying Sundance that he'd witnessed. It was the start of my concerted effort to learn about the Plains Indians and photograph their lives, Curtis wrote. I was intensely affected. I can't believe he got funding from, like, J.P. Morgan and Teddy Roosevelt. He went to J.P. Morgan and said, hey, I'd like some money. And Morgan wrote back, Mr. Curtis, there are many demands for my financial assistance. I will be unable to help you. But Curtis did not give up. And he wrote back to Morgan and showed him his photographs. And eventually Morgan wrote back, Mr. Curtis, I want to see these photographs in books, the most beautiful set of books ever published. So he gave, Morgan gave Curtis $75,000. Wow. He wanted 25 sets of books and 500 original prints. So Curtis went on to photograph Geronimo, Red Cloud, Medicine Crow, and Chief Joseph. He worked under the premise, he later said, of we not you. In other words, I worked with them, not at them. In his travels, he also recorded 10,000 wax cylinders. To the amusement of tribal elders, sometimes for a fee, Curtis was given permission to organize reenactments of battles and traditional ceremonies among the Indians, and he documented them with his hulking 14 by 17 inch view camera which produced glass plate negatives that yielded crisp, detailed, and gorgeous gold-toned prints. 
and he came to be known as the Shadow Catcher. Someone needs to name a camera that. There's a PBS documentary called that. Ooh. Ooh. Later, he worked with Cecil B. DeMille, did camera work on the Ten Commandments. So, Charlton Heston again. Stop it, Charlton Heston. So, Laura Lawler, who wrote The Shadow Catcher, The Life and Work of Edward S. Curtis, wrote, When judging by the standards of his time, Curtis was ahead of his contemporaries in sensitivity, tolerance, and openness to Native American cultures and ways of thinking. He sought to observe and to understand by going directly into the field. And so you kind of get this idea of early anthropological field work of really collecting ethnographies and understanding the importance of cultures different and disparate from your own. And he was doing this very differently than the anthropologists of the time were. You know, people like Franz Boas. Oh, the father of who, anthropology. Right. Yes, that's and the one. He has the famous quote, which I've read like 50 times in researching this. It is most unpleasant work to steal bones from a grave. But what is the use? Someone has to do it. So Franz Boas. Oh, a piece of work he was. He is the father of modern anthropology. If you take an Anthropology 1001 or 101 class, you will learn his name. He is very important, and he did some good things. Let's talk about those first. He was born in 1858 in Germany, and he received a Ph.D. in physics and a minor in geography from the University of Kiel. But he began his career with an exploration in Canada at Baffin Island, and he was introduced to cultures that he'd never encountered before, and he became obsessed with the ways in which people live their lives. He became obsessed with the study of culture. It sounds good so far. So far, he is a four-star. But he returned to Germany and took a job with the Royal Ethnological Museum in Berlin. And while working there, teaching geography, he met members of the Nuxalk Nation from British Columbia. And he developed a lifelong friendship with people of the Pacific Northwest. In 1886, he was traveling back to Germany from the Pacific Northwest, and he stopped in New York City and decided just to stay. And I think that that is one of the best decisions that he oh, yeah. could have possibly Definitely. made. No one wants to be a German, you know, culture researcher in the lead up to World War II. Yeah. That's no good can come mm. of that. No. He became the editor of Science Magazine and was also involved with bringing Native American cultures for display at the Chicago World's Fair. Like actually bringing them. Yes. And he formulated the idea of cultural relativism. And this is the thing you'd make a note card for when you read the name Franz Boas in your Anthropology 101 class. Okay, so cultural relativism, my essay is... In two sentences, describe cultural relativism. Civilization is not something absolute, but is relative. And our ideas and conception are true only so far as our civilization goes. Oh, the Nazis would have hated that shit. Oh, they did. They did, in fact. So he became the first professor of anthropology at Columbia University in New York, and he established the Department of Anthropology nine years later. He was appointed assistant curator of ethnology and somatology at the American Museum of Natural History. In 1911, he published The Mind of Primitive Man, which aimed to debunk the guiding notions of the day 
which highlighted the racial difference and created the idea that it was biological and that the Anglo-Saxon race was superior. Ah, oh, damn it. Stop well, it. He debunked it. Oh, oh. He did. Oh, good. In the 1930s, his books were burned by Nazis and his PhD from the University of Kiel in Germany was burned as well. One can hope their books are burned by Nazis. That's how you know they're good. So he would eventually become a sharp and vocal critic of Hitler. And eventually the book Race and Democratic Society was published in 1945 after his death, which was a posthumous collection of articles. He was absolutely instrumental in creating and establishing the concept that race is a purely cultural or social construct. However, he did his share of shady business. I'm sure he did. Both the Chicago Field Museum and the American Museum of Natural History in New York, unscrupulous rivals in the field, laid waste to burial sites of the Northwest Coast Indians, you know, his friends, in their determined pursuit for bones. On the Northwest Coast, the Indians were shocked with the horror to discover that upon their return from fishing and hunting trips, how their burial grounds were plundered. What the fuck, man? I thought we were friends. <laughs> On one occasion, they discovered not only their graves open and broken, but bones scattered all over the ground. But also, artifacts were gone, and wooden caskets were floating in the sea. They accused anthropologist George Dorsey of the Field Museum, and with good cause. Definitely the Field Museum, not Boaz. As one historian noted, Dorsey's expedition to the northwest coast at this time was a rip-and-run operation. Anthropologist Franz Boaz at the American Museum of Natural History was gleeful at his competitor's discomfort, but admitted that he had often done the same. Boaz had his doubts about such collecting. For Boaz, collecting was more than just science. It could also be profitable. Writing to his wife, Boaz confided, Yesterday, I wrote to the museum in Washington, asking whether they would consider buying scores this winter for $600, and if they will, I shall collect assiduously. Without having such a connection, I would not do it. Boaz not only dug up graves, but hired others to dig also. He eventually acquired about 100 complete skeletons and 200 crania. Part of his collection he peddled to his old mentor in Berlin, Rudolf Vischoff. Later, Boaz would rationalize his digging as all in the interest of science. Huh. <laughs> Things that have been done in the interest of science. It was also in the name of science that four Inuit or Eskimos were brought to New York City in 1896 by the Arctic explorer Robert Perry. Yeah. <laughs> At Boaz's request, they died shortly after arrival. And rather than giving them burials or returning their bodies to Greenland, they were macerated, boiled down. Their skeletons were placed on display at the American Museum of Natural History. Those were eventually returned. <laughs> eventually. But may I remind you that they were living just five minutes ago and now their skeletons yeah. are on display. It's ironic, says archaeologist Sonia Atale of Indiana University. As anthropologists, we know how much can be learned about the culture from looking at how they treat the dead. So it is interesting to see how anthropology has changed over time. Because back when Boaz was working, he was interested in the culture and he did want to learn more about it. But he also had very little respect 
for what was happening in the cultures that were present. I think that he had respect for the cultural significance of it, but he didn't have empathy. There was zero empathy. Zero. And so there's this fantastic article, Old Bones, New Power, by Jean-Francois Verin, who discusses this idea. And he says, Physical anthropologists, among others, use these bodies, dead or alive, to produce the knowledge confirming that they were indeed inferior and primitive. When the bodies finally spoke, it was through the voice of science. And this science confirmed that the beings that carry these bodies could not say much anyway. Donna Haraway called them ventriloquists, the ones who made the mute and silenced bodies of those being controlled speak about natural order. So, in the 1970s, there were many sit-ins in museums by Indian groups protesting not only the open display of Indian bones and glass cases, but also the display and retention of ethno-historical and ethnographic artifacts, stolen, as they claimed, from Indian graves. A group of Indians in 1971 staged a sit-in at the Southwest Museum in Los Angeles, and they demanded not only the removal of ancestral bones from the public view, but also that archaeological expeditions be screened by our traditional Indians to prevent further desecration of our ancestral burial grounds, and that traditional-oriented Native Americans replace the non-Indian employees. Obviously, political, religious, economic concerns are conflated in these demands. Of course, there's a range of opinions among Indians, as there is among anthropologists and archaeologists regarding ethics, methods, and goals of archaeology. Some Indians hold the extreme view that all archaeology is desecration of Indian culture, an affront to Indian beliefs and a cause for spiritual sickness. According to this view, Indian spiritual beliefs are violated. As one Indian explained, if you disturb the dead or rob their graves of pots and other objects intended to secure their journey to the hereafter, their spirits wander and bring evil to those who allow their graves to be disturbed. Thus, Indians who allow their ancestors' graves to be open will suffer their ancestors' wrath. Indian people, according to one Pawnee, always assumed their dead were safe. And to learn this wasn't true caused intense pain, sadness, shock, and dismay. He noted that when the Pawnee learned that their whole burial grounds of their people were being dug up and the bones of the funerary artifacts sold, children and old women were crying for fear that their ancestors were wandering and couldn't rest. Some claimed that the bones were calling to them. They could hear them at night. Ojibwa Indian activist Dennis Banks, founding member of the American Indian Movement or AIM, insists that archaeologists are merely grave looters. But the only difference in his eyes is that archaeologists have a state license. It does not matter to Banks whether these graves are opened by professional archaeologists or amateur pot hunters. The diggers, quote, just don't understand the spiritual forces they've let loose and that's what nowadays anthropologists have almost tried to bury this old information bury the bad science that might have come out of this but of course there was some good information that came out of it too just done in a negative bad way unethical true but see Vran says that 
the voices of the former subalterns claiming their own ancestors whose remains were stored as museum collections or objects of scientific study keep the old anthropology in play. It's impossible to bury the past. It's become obvious that in spite of claims about scientific irrelevance, the heritage of raciology cannot simply be dismissed. But the thing about these objects is that they have a transactional value in a way that by fighting for it, by fighting to get your ancestors' remains back, you're getting a voice and you're able to claim that heritage, but also claim your rights. And by it being not easy, you're able to kind of fight back. He says, yesterday's dominated were reduced to a silenced body. It is notably through the remains of these bodies that their descendants gain voices today. The symbolic continuum is very powerful. So in a way, by having these physical bodies to fight over. By trying to close the open wounds that have been created. We're able to see in a literal way the other side of history. We're almost forced into it. And that's in a way what needs to happen. We're forced into a conversation. We're forced to unearth the uncomfortable heritage that preceded us. We're forced to deal with the bones and the artifacts and the way of life and the culture that preceded us and those silent graves that we all comfortably ignore. And that's not just a story. No, that's not just a story. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen.